right, folks. Hidden Pearls podcast coming at you. This is week 18. Niners are heading down to play the Rams. There's all of us kind of thought that uh, as the year went on, that the Niners' playoff hopes would come down to the last week of the season, as it does for a bunch of folks. It's been a really tight race the whole year. So final road trip down to play our good friends, the Los Angeles Rams. You can hear more about that discussion. Uh, obviously, if the Niners win, they are in the playoffs. So we're fighting for that wild card spot. If they lose, not so good or a little bit tougher than the Saints, I think, have to lose to the Atlanta Falcons. So that could be tough. But anyway, conversation this week. Join me, Emma, and uh, we have George uh, chatting it up with offensive tackle, plays right tackle for us, Tom Compton, 10-year vet. He's been around, listened to some Kyle Shanahan stories because he was with him at two other teams. So pretty interesting that way. And um, also about playing in the Super Bowl loss to the New England Patriots. Don't tell him I said that. That was a little sensitive for him. So, but Tom will be in there and they'll talk a little bit about the game as well and get ready for that. In part two, all right, we are really, really thrilled. This week, we have two very special guests um, bringing really some connections that I have from my old football days at the University of Iowa. Our first guest is Marine Gunnery Sergeant Chris Holm, 17-year vet uh, with the Marines. He's been on five combat tours and on one of those served as Gunnery Sergeant. For our other guest tonight, which is First Lieutenant Alec Mahan. Now, here's the deal. Alec is the son of Dave Mahan, who was a fellow offensive lineman, played with me back in the Iowa days, uh, when, actually, we played on the 1981 Iowa Rose Bowl team, which won the Big Ten Championship that year. So, uh, actually played in 82 Rose Bowl. So, that was pretty cool. So, we're super excited about that, and it's a great conversation. Chris shares a little bit about his deployment, and Alec is on just to talk about their relationship, some of the things they've done. He's a first lieutenant, and so they kind of talk about a little bit of those things. But And we get into some of the mental health issues as well, so it's really good. So we uh, welcome those guys, and we invite you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Take three of Hidden Pearls Podcast. Tom Compton's here. We're not wasting any of his time. We're going to go right through this thing. Thanks, Tom, for being here. So happy for you. Um, after a few altercations to our script, we're now ready to roll. Tom is a 10-year vet. Congratulations on 10 years. That is one hell of an accomplishment because the NFL does stand for not for long, and you've been here for quite a while. So congratulations. That's pretty sick. Coming out of South Dakota, taken by the Washington football team, even though they were called something different 10 years ago. In the sixth round of the 2012 draft. Wow, that was my freshman year of college. Nice. You're listed at 6'6", 315 pounds. I love all of that. Tom is married to Tiffany. And they have a new baby boy, Theo, born last November. And also have a daughter named Tate, who's a year and a half old. Tom, welcome, welcome to Girls Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome introduction. That Was I, was I nice enough? That was very nice of you. He's pretty gentle. He's pretty gentle. Okay. So Tom, we like to start by taking it back a little bit. So let's start with our family lessons. So can you kind of paint a picture? What was growing up for you? Like how many siblings, who was the toughest? Um, anything you want to share with that? Um, sure. Yeah. We grew up in uh, Rosemount, Minnesota, uh, suburbs of St. Paul, Minneapolis. Um, I have an older brother and an older sister. So I'm the baby, the youngest. Um, my brother is three years older than me. Uh, he was definitely the tough guy. Um, I was a big softy baby, kind of still am. Um, but he, uh, 
I mean, he was kind of the reason why I got into football, being the older brother. Uh, he did it, and I kind of saw what he was doing and wanted to follow along that path. Um, we started young. <laughs> I was seven or eight, started in third grade, and uh, just kind of followed his lead on everything. Um, but, yeah, it, there's no question who was tougher there, although things have changed a little bit. Uh, once we got out of college and he started shrinking, I started growing. So uh, it's kind of been an easy wrestling match ever since then. Um, and then, uh, shoot, uh, lessons. I mean, just trying to get away with things, um, trying to be sneaky because they would always break the rules. So they'd set an example of how to not do it. Um <laughs> You just We're so, so good for that. We're so good for that. <laughs> I learned a lot from them on what not to do. Yeah, they get in trouble, and then you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that. You have to be really careful on how to do that. You just kind of figure it out from there. Did you uh, always play offensive line, Tom, or did you ever play another position? I've been an offensive lineman my whole life. Um, wow. In the <laughs> third to sixth grade, it was weight limits, so – I was always O-line no matter what. And then we got to middle school and they were kind of like open to you doing different positions. And they were like, go where you want to go play. And so I was like, oh, you know, wide receiver would be fun. I started walking over there. Coach grabs me by the neck and is like, no, you're playing O-line. And uh, (laughs) I was like, okay, that's cool. And we've always like the, uh, like the high school I went to and, uh, the communities I played in were huge, so um, we didn't really have a whole lot of people play offense and defense, so uh, I've basically just done offensive line my whole life. Wow. A true master. Yeah. No, great, no, no greater honor. That's, that's very impressive. Yeah, sure. We can call it that. <laughs> I bet you would have made a great wide receiver. Yeah, Tom, you would have been mean, guys up. Playing, like, backyard ball, I mean, obviously, like, going up for a ball is always fun, but O-line is my gift and my curse. Do you want uh, one of those tackle passes that Trent Williams got? Yeah, I've actually had a few opportunities um, in the past as kind of a jumbo tight end. Um, jumbo I tight came end. close once. There's There's been times it's weird, like, either I'm wide open and the quarterback knows better, or I'm like triple covered for some reason and the defense is messed up. So oh, good. that's kind of how it is. Cool. Uh, before we leave your family stuff, um, what was kind of the best or toughest lesson you learned from your family? I mean, just about life or, you know, how to get along or that, any of those kind of things. Did you, what'd you pick up there? Um, gosh, uh, <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, obviously it, it shapes who you are. Um, but I think, you know, just kind of being tough, um, having tough skin, being from the Midwest, um, you know, growing up before internet and social media and stuff. Uh, my parents obviously wanted us to be able to kind of fend for ourselves. And they, I think they did a really good job of letting us kind of grow and not like helicopter or suffocate us in any way. Um, and just kind of figure things out as you go and kind of have to be tough on your own and um, just kind of learn the hard way, I guess. I love that. Tom, you, know, Tom oh, you go, Dad. Go. Well, I was just going to say, a lot of 
there's a lot of research on that, like your kind of age group in there. You're kind of one of the last kind of vestiges of, uh, you know, generation of kids that actually didn't have super helicopter parents. You know what I mean? You were kind of, actually, it was kind of starting there maybe five or six years before that. And a lot of research about just letting kids kind of fail and try and do all that kind of stuff versus protecting them from every bump in the road and all that kind of stuff. So, Dad, would you say you're one of the super helicoptery parents then? Are you a helicopter parent? Did you helicopter us? Well, you know, I mean, I tried to guide and do all that. You kind hang of stuff, out with us on a daily basis? Yeah, but I, I mean, I wasn't worried if you got knocked down or, you know, all that kind of bullshit. So, I mean, we tried to let you take the knocks as they come. We gave you a lot of freedom. Hell, when we lived on the big acreage, right? Hell, George took off for the afternoon, got lost. We couldn't find, we had a 300 acre piece of property and nightfall and we couldn't find George anywhere. So it was like, you know, like we kind of, you know, we kind of let you run and go do shit. So it's like, you know, that's kind of part of it. So that's where the, um, the old rumor is that the broken bones are actually good for you. They grow back stronger and the experience of breaking something or learning or failing or hurting, um, it kind of builds that character. So, so anyway, kudos to the folks. That's great. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm definitely part of that group that, you know, they would let you just go out and say, be back when the streetlights come on and you just kind of right. go out and figure stuff out. Right. Well, oh, trusting man. community. That seems like a very far-fetched thing now also. Don't yeah, it's tough to imagine with doing that with my kids, but <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. You guys plan on having any more kids? I mean, I know you guys just had one like months ago. Uh, as far as we're concerned, we're happy with two. Um, <laughs> we don't want to start having to play zone defense, so it's it's pretty good man on man right now. So watch you guys will try again, and you'll have triplets or something. Oh, uh, please don't wish that on me. <laughs> I'm wishing. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. All right. So transitioning from college to the NFL. Um, so sixth round to the Washington football uh, team. Washington football team out of South Dakota. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the toughest transition was for you from college to pros within the first couple of years? I mean, within the first couple of days, the talent <laughs> level, it was absurd how much better everyone is around you. Um, yeah. I, I think we got to rookie minicamp OTAs and it was just like a whole nother level that I hadn't even known was out there. And um, at the time, we had Ryan Kerrigan, Brian Arakpo as our outside linebackers and just getting worked by them every day as a rookie. Um, just the strength, the speed, everything that comes with professional football, um, trying to adjust to that was really hard. And, I mean, that's probably why I ended up on the practice squad. And um, But, you know, you you just kind of – it takes time, takes reps, um, takes – for offensive line, sometimes, like in my case, taking years, not just a season or two to figure out. So um, there's just so much that comes with it. Um, and then you just try to kind of narrow it down each year because it's just this whole brand new experience for me. Well, hey, Tom, and real quick, who, uh, who else got drafted with you? Do you remember? Like, do you remember who your first round draft pick was? Uh, yeah, it was Robert Griffin the third. Um, we had RG three, we had Kirk cousins, um, Alfred Morris. Um, I played with Alfred. Yeah. Josh Rebus, Adam Geddes, um, Keenan Robinson as a linebacker. Um, I think that's it. 
That's pretty cool. That's quite the it class. Pretty, you're a part of. It was a good group. Yeah, we had a really solid draft class. I was happy with that group. That's, That's pretty awesome. cool. Did you well, um like your rookie year? Did you have like a best friend from your rookie class? Did you guys like? I don't know because like I had Trent Taylor and um, another offensive lineman that I lived with my rookie season. We we're basically like inseparable. Did you have like Fred, like a group of guys you hung out with consistently? Yeah, it was mainly Kirk Cousins. Uh, we were oh, sick. Yeah, we were like both uh, kind of running with the twos. So like that relationship of the O line and the backup quarterback was always been strong i think and we uh i mean we hung out all the time we were roommates for three years um oh, that's cool just kind of figured it out together type of thing it was it was a good experience for both of us i think that's awesome i didn't know that that's a fun fact that's yeah it is kurt cousins is roommates with the tom compton that's awesome. <laughs> i'm sure it shaped a lot of the career he has now yeah yeah you know i feel like i've influenced him in positive ways some negative probably we all need that all right pop you're up oh good well i was just gonna you know tom it's it's amazing though like when you come in like that you know especially you know that range of draft choice you know i mean george was in that same category you know you're just trying to fight your ass off to stay make it that first year so you get a chance to develop but the NFL is not much of a developmental league for the most part. You know what I mean? And so it's really kudos to you. I mean, you must have been showing something. I know that first year, a lot of practice squad, I think, is if, as I understand it. Uh, but still found a way and then kind of fought your way on to making the roster later in the season and all that kind of stuff. So um, pretty cool that way. And so just, again, fighting to survive and every year kind of making it. And I know you. we're going to get to some of the teams you played for and all that. But anyway... Um, that's quite an accomplishment to sit here now have 10 seasons in the NFL when most people don't make it four. you know, I mean, that's really an accomplishment. So, so well done. Okay. Um, and then I guess, you know, one thing I'm always curious about is um, a lot of the guys we talk to when they're making that transition and maybe Kirk Cousins was that guy, but I just wonder like in within O-line play, you know, as you're trying to like figure it out, was there anybody that really was a guiding hand and said, Hey Tom, try this or do that. Or, you know, like, paved the way for you a little bit to make it a little bit easier that you look back on and really helped you make it? Uh, yeah, we had a, I feel like a really special offensive line group when I was in Washington. Um, and every guy that was on the starting line helped me out every way. Yeah. It was so cool because, you know, you you hear some horror stories of guys being assholes or yeah. um, not wanting to help out the younger guys, but like, literally every guy on the line had a little piece of something to like, be like, Hey, you should try this. Or, you know, your, your stance is a little awkward. Maybe your footwork here. Um, I mean, we had, I, I, I had Trent Williams. Um, right. He was a part of that group. Um, and obviously he's does things that no one can really replicate. So it was more of just being um, astonished at what he could do physically. Right. But then, um, down the line, we uh, Corey Lichtensteiger, Will Montgomery, Chris Chester, Tyler Columbus, those guys every day weren't afraid to help me and coach me, which is awesome. And I like, I, I don't know how invaluable that is, but uh, I definitely wouldn't, you know, be here without them. Were you at Washington with Brandon Sheriff or not? Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, his rookie year. I was there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, how was how uh, Sheriff? <laughs> Sheriffy? Um, I love Scherf. Uh, you know, as a rookie, he was 
obviously trying to figure it out too, but you know, he's still, I mean, he's proven every year how badass he is and how good he is of a player. And he's, but, he's kind uh, of a, he's a freak athlete kind of like, Trent. yeah, like, yeah, he, you don't think about it, but with, with him, like his hair and head, it reminded me of like a grizzly bear, like it just a thick skull <laughs> and like, Yes. Uh, there's something about that. It was, you can just headbutt people and crush them. That like, I was like, yeah, this dude's gonna be good. Yeah, he was he was fun at Iowa. He was so intimidating. Like, I don't. Did you ever see the viral video of him hang cleaning like 450 pounds or something like that? No, I, I, I've not seen that. Oh yeah, dude, it was absolutely. He did it a senior <laughs> year. He threw that up. I was like, oh my, I not because I think I was a freshman or a sophomore when he redshirt freshman. He did, and I was like, okay. Nice. That's and an NFL player. Yeah, and he's super nice and like good dude too. So it's kind of like yeah. shocking a little bit when you just meet him. <laughs> uh, well, very good. All right, cool. Okay, then ten year career played for Washington, Atlanta Bears, Vikings, Jets, and then the Niners starting in uh, twenty one. So I just we're just kind of curious, you know, with those transitions and that. Um, what are some of the issues that you faced and how did you kind of overcome some of that stuff, you know, bopping around like that? Um, so it, it's, it's super hard. It's so, it's really tough going to a new team every year. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't bad going to Atlanta after Washington. It was like, Oh, this would be a fresh start. Um, and then I, it, they had the same, a lot of the same coaches that I was familiar with. So that was probably the easiest transition because I was excited to start somewhere new. And then it seemed like every year after that, it was bouncing to a new team. And it's after the first time, you know, you're like, okay, maybe I'll stick here. And then it just keeps going. And you get into this like thing of like, gosh, am I going to be on this team the following year? And the hardest things are like learning, obviously learning the playbook. I mean, you pick that up pretty quick, but like each coach is different, like how they want their technique done. So you're like trying to learn how they coach things. And by the time you figure it out or you're starting to figure it out, season's over and you're going to a new team. So it's like, okay, take, take what I can from that and go on to the next team type of thing. And then the hardest thing too, is you're meeting a whole new building of people. There's so many people involved in an organization equipment trainers food staff like everybody is new and you're just like your mind is blown with like names names and like Uh, just who they are getting to know people like it's hard to get to know like a hundred people every year fresh and it's just like i gotta do this again and again and again and that that gets tough Hmm. Well, we're going to come back to mindset later, so we'll kind of talk about that. So that's like an important thing about making those transitions. So, well, what was it that, like? Uh, sorry, what was it when you went back to the Vikings? Was it fun to be with Kirk again? Oh, it was awesome. Yeah, we and at the time the Vikings, we had a, a really cool roster, um, great group of dudes. O line room was awesome, and then obviously getting to be back with Kirk, it was like something we had talked about every year. Like, oh, you know, maybe something will come up and. And then it finally did, and it was like, so cool to be able to get back and just kind of goof around a little bit. Like we did our first couple of years in Washington, and did you guys room together like just for old time? <laughs> like have some sleep? No, <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, at that point, uh, we both were married, and he had kids, and 
So we were kind of past that point, but I <laughs> like where your head's at. Very cool. Uh, let's see. Okay. Then uh, before we transition into your Niner years, um, I just had that, you know, you were part of the Atlanta Super Bowl, you know, with the New England. And I just, and I was just wondering about kind of career highlights. I mean, making the Super Bowl obviously has got to be, you know, up there, but um, any memories or lessons around that game? you know, as far as going through it, or if there's something else you want to chat about, just you've been at it a long time and played in a lot of football games. So I just, I mean, obviously to me, that would be one that would stand out, but uh, how was that? Or is there anything else? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, at the time uh, when we got hot at the end of the season there, uh, like going into every game, we knew we were going to win. And that was like the coolest thing. I've, I've never got to experience that before on a team is like before the games even kicked off, you know, you're going to win and having that mentality with the team. And uh, we were just kicking ass, like, all throughout the playoffs. And then uh, the Super Bowl, we started out hot, obviously. And, um, you know, we we were riding high. And, you know, you never know, I guess, with Tom Brady and the Patriots especially. And uh, I think that was, like, probably one of the hardest lessons to learn is that, like, a game is never truly over. Um, until the clock hits zero. And we kind of experienced that a little bit this year, starting off with um, Detroit, you know, being up 41-17, you're like, all right, game's over. But, like, in the back of my mind, every time we're up, I'm like, it, we got to keep, you know, putting it on the – putting them on the gas and yeah, can't let up because, like, it, it can happen at any time. So that, that was, like, a really good lesson as far as, like, a team and, like, knowing when to finish, but like, it sucks that you had to learn it in the Super Bowl. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty tough. Yeah. But that's really true though. And I know there's, it, you know, it's, it's not Pop Warner. It's not high school. I mean, we don't call the dogs off because just like you said, every team's so talented, one couple fumbles or interception and just weird stuff happens and there's no stopping. So very good. But George, why do you take that next category? Uh, ooh, the Niners and the Kyle connection. Mm. All right, Tom. So you first signed with us last year, 2020 season, right? When did you sign with oh, yeah. Was it OTAs? Uh, yeah, I think so. It was right before OTAs. Oh, but then we didn't have OTAs, right? Because yeah. it canceled. That's yeah. what it was. So first yeah. time we really got to meet was via Zoom on a team meeting, probably. I scrolled past her face. and was like, oh, Tom Compton. Nice. Never met you before. Can't wait to <laughs> sick zoom. Looks like a nice guy. Looks like a, nice, looks like a nice guy. Looks like a cool dude. Can't wait to meet you, Tom. Great last name. Um, and then we got to meet in training camp. So then we re-signed you to another another one-year deal. So you're with us this season. It's been an absolute blast playing alongside of you. Um, so you played under Coach Shanahan when you were drafted in 2012 when he was in Washington, and then in 16, and then now. Um, what's the biggest difference between like 2012 and let's just say now? Um, Besides well, being like a little scrawnier. Yeah. I just say he's, yeah, he never used to grow out a beard or anything back then. So he looked a lot younger. Um, and uh, I mean, 2012, I mean, he's an offensive coordinator. I'm a rookie. So like, I'm not too like, I'm not talking to him a whole lot. So I like didn't really have whole much of a relationship. I was pretty much scared of everyone around me. I was like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to get cut. 
and like walk down the hallway and like uh, like turn the other direction like (laughs) 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 but he's i mean he's been the same guy i feel like um (laughs) Um, we've we've all been there dog yeah i I that that first year is just terrifying oh yeah and uh but he's always like he's talked the same way um he's always been a big uh F guy, okay, I don't know if you'd say that. Um, you can likes say to whatever throw the F bomb, F bomb around a lot. Love which those I love. Which I love. All my coaches from college and whatever have been doing that, so I'm used to that. And um, but uh, I mean, the, the coolest thing I guess is that he's so knowledgeable and like understands football. He, like he's not trying to force anything like an agenda like he's trying to win the game and doing whatever it takes to win the game and he understands like football so like it's kind of like a simple thing but like not a lot of coaches understand that yeah he's he's there to win football games and you and he talks about how to win games and then hey this is how you lose games so we're going to try to do what it takes to win games and he's pretty straightforward with that. And yeah, it's very like it's very nice to be able to listen to that. Definitely. Um, let's see. Oh, this is a good one that we like to ask people. What's the hardest block for you? Like the hardest play for you in Coach Shanahan's system? And I got um, obviously versus, like versus whatever front, but like what's like been one of the most difficult blocks for you? I think for for tackles in this system, you have to be able to cut off backside, um, and then you have to win open side reaches. Um, those are like the two biggest things I think, and it's a lot of the stuff we do the most. So it's not only is it like it's not like one of those things that comes up once or twice a game. It's like you have to be perfect on this like ten to twenty times a game. Like, and if you don't win on either of those blocks, like the play's dead or like you know, TFL. And so it's, I, I think cutting off especially is tough because they're a lot of the times already heading that way anyway. And uh, being able to like press the block and uh, give a, the back a read. I mean, it's just, it's difficult, but that's like, I, I love doing it. Like that's, yeah. that's, that's I, like I love that. the system. He's in the gap ahead of you. You have to figure out a way to cut him off while pushing him that way as he's just <laughs> driving through your face. And yeah, if you get pushed back more than two or three yards, you blow the whole play. Super you're going fun. lateral, but you're also going downfield. It's try not tough. try not to hold too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Tom, most of the time on a three technique, you'll get a little chip, won't you, from the guard? A little bit. So, but or you, you hope, yeah. Um, but this sometimes line, it kind of depends on where the linebacker is and like where they're trying to get to and all that. Shit. Well, there's sometimes George experiences it too. Like if <laughs> if we have like a three technique and a five technique, and he's like, "Hey, you and me are working together." I'm like, "Nah, dude, I gotta go with the guard over here." So sometimes the guard does that to me and is like, "No, nah, I gotta work with the center." So yep, then I'm on happened. my own cutting off the three. So it's. That's a bitch. Most of the time you have help, but there's a few instances where you don't. And you just got to run like hell. <laughs> you and, just then gotta, the, the open, <laughs> and then the open side reach, because a lot of times the guards working with the center, either versus a three technique if you had a five, 
or even if the nose guards, you know, in the A gap, there's typically chipping. So then you're solo a lot on what's a five technique a lot. Yeah. So with those, um, you know, the, the defender's trying to set the edge and, you know, if you get stuck on the line there, the whole play kind of gets sandwiched yep. and accordioned right there. Like, and then it makes the back have to do a quick cutback and it just messes up the timing on everything. So I, uh, I definitely try to take a lot of pride in like moving that block to give everyone else space so they can like time out their blocks. Okay. We'll come back to some pass protection questions when we get into our conversation about the Rams with your good buddies coming off the edge this weekend. So that'll be great. All right. And let's see, George, the last one there. Oh, what's the first time that we met, Tom? Do you remember? Uh, I, I do remember. Do you remember? I don't know. You have to remind me. Um, well, we that's were... not a great. <laughs> uh, we were in Levi's Stadium because we had to do the meeting up in like the United Club and we had to walk up all those stairs to go to the meeting and then we came back down and I think we had like a team meeting in the bleachers and I think we were sitting pretty close to each other and then it was just one of those deals where you're like oh hey you know nice to meet you type of thing even though you obviously knew who I was. I didn't really know who you were. So it was like <laughs> kind of awkward, but it worked out. Sir, this little newbie <laughs> boy. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Got him. All right. So uh, cool. Pictures. Gosh, that was the worst. <laughs> because of COVID, we had to meet up in the press box for more space. And then, but to get over there is press box across. And so, yeah, we, and they wouldn't let us walk across the field. Mm-hmm. And so you had to walk all the way around the other side up the whole first like section of the stadium. And then you'd meet in that area. And that's where our team meeting was for one day because afterwards Kyle Shanahan was like, that was awful. I don't, I can't walk like that. Like we have to add 15 minutes a day just to walk up here. Cause I remember like Trent Williams, like, I, he was like jogging around the field because he didn't realize how far away it was. He was almost late, <laughs> but there was got, a lot of angry people there. We're all so mad. <laughs> it was the first day of camp. We're all out there trying to not like, you know, save our legs, like no chance, but like, uh, yeah, we, we didn't meet there again. They, they figured something else out that was way closer. Thank goodness. Yeah. Me and stairs do not get along. I, Hmm. I try to avoid them at all costs. And then you remember the special teams meeting for like the first, no, for the whole training camp was like on the fourth floor of the press box and you couldn't take an elevator. So you said to ride escalators up four flights of stairs. <laughs> you had to leave for meetings like 15 minutes early. Yeah. I, I think I found a way to get the elevator somehow because I remember going up and down the elevator sneakily. Oh, I did too. I remember that they said, don't take them. And then we start taking them after like the third day. We're like, yeah. I'm not waiting anymore. That was fun. Well, speaking of saving your legs, um, oh, clever we're going to ride, uh, ride right into, so this is one of my new favorite parts of our show, but we call it our recovery roundtable. So now that you're in the 10th season, um, what have you learned about recovery? So I'd say my first four to five years, I did hardly any. I Because, you know, you're young and spry and coming from south dakota it's not like we had a bunch of recovery methods other than just ice and ibuprofen so you 
kind of just pick things up as you go. And when things start to hurt, you're like, uh, I should probably start looking into doing stuff. And I've tried a whole lot of different things. Some things I like, some things I don't like I've, I've tried acupuncture. I'm not a huge fan of that. Like the dry needling stuff. I know guys swear by it, but I just, I hate it. So I don't ever do it. We do. We um, just got treated like literally right before this. Yeah. I, it's, it's just not for me. And, uh, but like, I'm a huge fan of like hot and cold tubs. Um, and then, uh, those new, like we hot tub, we'd hot tub a lot together. I hot tub so much. Yeah. It's, a highlight of my day for sure um they have those new like guns like the hypervolt or theraguns those weren't around my first few years um so that's like a newer thing that i've used quite a bit and i love that um and then i think just like other like basic things that you don't think about like sleep and drinking a lot of water like just basic things that you might take for granted. Um, yeah, I got, I drink eight of these a day. Eight? <laughs> He's exaggerating. But oh, basically. I was like, I mean, <laughs> you got me. I, I was all in on that. Dude, Tom, I got, um, so I have this, I like have something that tracks my sleep and I slept for nine hours last night. That's amazing. Can you, that I don't amazing. know the last time, like usually it says I sleep like 740, like 745. I got nine hours of sleep and I was like, wow, I'm more exhausted than I usually am. This is great. <laughs> I'm surprised you go to bed that early. I feel like you're up all night gaming or something. Oh, yeah, no. Claire does not let me do that. I love you, babe. That's good. That's good by Claire then. Just um, piss off days. I got it. I, I got, I'm lucky to get seven, eight, and um, uh, with, you know, having to get up early going into work and then being up with the babies is you got to kind of manage that. So, but I, I definitely get at least six. So that's helpful. Are you and Tiff on like a really strict, uh, like sleep schedule with your babies? Yeah. I mean, we, I should say we, I mean, Tiffany did all the work. Um, I kind of just helped out, but good for you. Um, made the baby. <laughs> yeah. She's, like the master of trying to get sleep figured out and like being pretty strict about it. So I'm just like, yeah, whatever. They're fine. They'll sleep. Like she's like, no, it's a, it's a plan. And I'm like, okay, you're right. So we got Tate uh, sleep trained pretty quickly. And then, um, I mean, obviously Theo's still really young. He's about coming up on two months. So um, it's basically just, survival mode survival, making yeah. sure yeah making sure he's eating and getting good naps and everything well, well shut up Jeff, that's awesome oh go ahead just, well just a plug for sleep there's just the research out on minimum seven anything you get over eight it's not just the physiological with the the body and the cell recovery and the regeneration but also with the mind waves and all that kind of stuff about reducing stress you know and cognitive you know retention and everything it's just you can get to eight. It's just unbelievable the numbers now they've got on the research over the last five years with it. So anyway, so kudos for sleeping as much as you can. We'll give you a pass right now because you got a new little baby, but it's it's just amazing what it does to your body. So anyway, shout out for that. Okay. Sorry, Amy, uh, go. Do you do, do you do much uh, like yoga or anything like stretching wise or mobility work? 
Um, other than just kind of the stuff at work, I don't really do like traditional yoga. Um, but I have recently done like, you know, that HydroWorks pool next to the hot tubs. Like I'll get in there after the hot tub and kind of do like a water yoga thing. Like I'll like, it's just easier on the body. I feel like, oh, well, yeah, <laughs> get a synchronized swimming team going. Um, Beautiful. but just doing like stretches that are easier to do in water, obviously than on land. Uh, I feel like that, that helps a lot out uh, stretching and whatnot. Tom, I want to, one thing I'm really curious about in 10 years. And so, like you said, you come out of South Dakota and I, I don't know what your strength program was like, but just like at Iowa, it's a real, you know, it's grind, 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 all Olympic, you know, super power lifting and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, all whatever, but, you know, long-term, you know, a lot of that stuff's not really that conducive or helpful for playing football. And as you age, you know, your body starts to change and you need to kind of do different things. So I'm just, I'm really curious, like, you know, was there a time in your career, you know, you're at year 10 that you really looked at your strength training and did you make any modifications or changes with that? And if so, what, and then same thing with kind of, and I know for O-linemen, it's a little bit different, your speed and agility, but you're still doing those kind of things. You're working the drills and all that, but did you make some modifications, you know, over the course of your career as your body, you know, was changing and you were learning more about things that were really important for football as opposed to just kind of throwing a bunch of weights around? Yeah, definitely. Um, probably, gosh, like year seven or eight, I started making some real modifications as far as strength uh, strength training goes. Um, I was, you know, squatting really heavy and doing deadlifts and, um, and like, it's just my back and my knees started hurting a little bit. And I was like, maybe I should calm this down. Um, so I try to avoid deadlifts. I know George and all the tight ends love doing them every Monday. Um, but I, I look at that and I just want to puke because I'm like, that would just shred my back right now. And, and then as far as like squat and bench, you know, try not, I try not to go over like, say like, four plates on the squat rack. Like it, to me, it's like I can hit that strength stimulus. And then like anything after that, I feel like is more wear on me. So obviously everyone's different and how they do it. Some guys love throwing on a lot of weight, but just the way I know my body is like, I can hit a high weight, but I don't need to overdo it. And, and then, mm -hmm. like you said, with the, with the running stuff, like, used to run a, a ton like sprinting gassers and now i'm just like is that really gonna benefit me a whole lot like i'll get into shape i'll get conditioned but like just doing like more than you need to um i try to avoid just doing work just to do it i, I want everything to have a purpose and i like overwork i feel like is i don't know the research it's just a field thing but uh, it's doesn't seem conducive yeah. Always, we, we've always felt like there's only so much tread. <clears throat> there's only so much tread on the tire. So like you only do yeah. so many things so many times before your body just kind of gives out. So you, you want to like refine and be really strong and in shape. But if you do too much, then you're kind of just taking off a layer before the season even starts. Cause there's only so many reps you can physically take. Like there's only so many passes that a quarterback's going to throw in his career. Because I, I know I was talking to I was talking to somebody about this, but they're they think they said like Aaron Rodgers doesn't really throw a lot in the offseason. 
Well, I think, I, mean, I don't know his reasoning why, but my thoughts, maybe because he knows he only has so many throws. So why would you just wear down the, I mean, the arm? And I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like we have to go, like I have to go out and I have to catch it. Like I have to need to catch footballs and lift weights, but there has to be like a smart way to do it. And it's not just bang your head against the wall and Hey, let's get the, get the chalk out, get the smelling salts. And I'm going to try to deadlift 650 pounds right now. There's not really a need for it anymore. I mean, it's not like Tom. How much stronger are you going to get this off season? Right. Yeah. It's not. It's not a goal of mine. Like, it's not mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm going to try and like PR on this. Like, I, those days are behind me, right. and I'm like okay with that. And <clears throat> it's just like doing the football specific things that are necessary, and then everything right. else will kind of come with it. No, it's all I about will, it, it's all I about football specific. This. I will say this: um, in 2000, I want to say it was. 2015 or 2016 um, in winter workouts, Marshall, when I was at Iowa, Marshall Yonda would always come back and train at Iowa. And he PR'd in like 2016 on his squat. And that was 10 years, 12 years in the league at that point. He had his PR. And I, we were all sitting there going like, oh my goodness. What was it? Do you remember? Uh, a lot of weight. I have no idea. It was just really impressive because I just remember everyone was talking about it. And I was like, geez, geez Louise, dude, relax. Do you guys both yeah. remember? I know that I've had this conversation with George, but like kind of that tipping point that you're talking about where like you have to, you know, because in college, it's like you just kind of have to do what they tell you to do. And then once you're in the league, like you have to really be the, mo- the one who's monitoring your body. So what? year like how old do you think you were when you started to kind of see that and like maybe had to say no to things to take care of yourself i think well like in college it's fun like you're just like meatheads essentially like and then your first couple of years in the league it's like super competitive and you're like i want to be stronger than this guy type of thing and then i don't know it must hit everyone a little differently but like i stopped caring what other people were lifting and like was just making sure I was making strides up by myself. And uh, it was probably like maybe when I got to like Chicago, like year six or so, um, it was more about focusing on myself and kind of like what I can do to be better. Um, because before then it was just like, how much are you lifting? Okay. I'm gonna lift a little bit more. And it's like, what are you, what are you really doing type of thing? Yeah. (laughs) Go, bro. Where are you going to lift today? Where are you going to lift? Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely us. We were, we were both competing <laughs> in the room for sure. Competing yeah. on kind of bench max. I love that. Well, yeah. Tom, I want to, yeah. I just, I want to peek two things though that you said. Well, one, I'm just going to like, how often do you lift 400 pounds off the ground playing a football game? You never right. do. Like, I, I right. just, the utility of squats and the damage it does to knees, thighs, and ankles. Anyway, so I'm over it. But, you know, I know there's a lot of debate about that. Yeah, a lot of debate. But anyway, so but what you commented on, though, I just want to like if you could play that out for us just a second. You said football related movements. You know, you were talking about football specific. And so have you found ways to specifically tailor your strength training to football, what you consider to be football specific types of lifts? Has that altered over the course of your career? Um, there's not like uh, too many lifts that I can like replicate for football specific but i know like um when you use like the the jammer press or like um a lot more band work um where you're doing that 
the similar range of motion, even like um, hidden bags, so like like a punching bag, like doing going through uh, like your typical just offensive line pass pro punch, like just right. getting that like stimulus over and over. It, it might not be like it might not look like you're doing a whole lot, but like it's more of like that um, unconscious training of like I'm just going to do this the same movement, the same motion over and over, and then it like I won't even have to think about it type of deal. So it's not really yeah. like I'm not like oh yeah, you should do like this press or whatever. Like it's it's uh, just trying to replicate those little Which movements um, with whatever you got in the gym, really. Yeah, things you do in the game. Right. And, yeah. and I think like our staff with the 49ers is a great job of like tailoring workouts to our position groups, like in the off season, like OTAs and stuff we're doing our like conditioning is running through football plays and like being down in your stance, getting out of your stance. It's not just like getting in a 40 yeah. stance and sprinting. It's like, no, get in your football position and then run from there. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. Anything else on recovery, Emmy? Um, for younger players or even people who aren't playing players, um, if you could recommend like one form of recovery, um, what would it be? Like Lakin suggested foam rollers that he was huge in rolling out. So something that's like available to everybody. Um, it's like saying the Vasper or some things like that might not be the best. Well, like as a high suggestion. schooler, like, what do you wish you would have started doing, you know, at the beginning? Um, probably, I mean, just stretching at any capacity. Uh, like, I like using bands. Um, but, like, when you're sore, just go through a whole stretch regimen and see how much better you feel. And, like, I would, when I was younger, just work out and then go sit and play video games or whatever. And you're just getting like everything's just locking up and tight. So it's basic stuff, but not a lot of people think to do it. Cool. And then, and then Tom, have you um, do you have uh, kind of an offensive line person that you go back and work with in the off season? Is that it's something that's been part of your regiment? Um, no, not typically. Um, most years, um, I'm usually staying wherever I'm playing. Okay. So I. Like I'll work out at the team facility and then whoever's there kind of work out with them. And each year, you know, there'll be a different group of players. And so that's kind of cool. But last year we finally bought a house. So I was living in Virginia um, and I did a lot of just training by myself. And that was a whole different experience too. And I, I found out like how much I like that a lot too, is that I can kind of set my own terms and um, work on just, what I think I need to do for myself not to worry about even like slipping up and being like over competitive, trying to outlift or outrun somebody. Um, it just really kind of changed the way I prepared. Yeah. All right. Very cool. Okay. Emmy, anything else? Sorry. I could... No, I mean, I'm just like, that's a lot of self-awareness to really self-regulate and self-coach. And so um, I think that takes us right into the mindfulness part pops. Well, very mm -hmm. good. So, all right. So, Tom, we uh, we work in addition to mobility and all that kind of stuff, a little program called Mindful Awareness and Performance, which is a meditation, mindfulness-based kind of way to help players uh, approach their mental preparation for the game. So, I'm just wondering, 
So like in our practice, you know, there's mindfulness, there's meditation kind of work, there's breath work. We work on affirmations, you know, writing out stuff, working on negative self-talk if people get some of that stuff, visualizations. I mean, there's a whole bevy of kind of things that we kind of work on. I'm just wondering what's, what does your mental game look like? How has that evolved over the years? And like, what are a couple tools that have helped you kind of train and compete at the top level? Um, so the, the things that you were listing are definitely things that I'm, looking to get into that's kind of the next step of uh, my progression um currently it's it's a lot of uh i'd probably say like visualizations the the biggest thing um anytime we are installing for that week the, the playbook you know i'm constantly visualizing like what does the perfect block look like and how can i execute that and we watch the film i look at the pictures and i'm like try to like again and again, just over and over picture myself going through that play, going through the footwork, going through the hand placement and like, how can I be perfect on that play? And then when we get out to the field, it's, I don't have to think about it kind of as much and I can just, just go do it. Um, That's like been the biggest thing I've used, um, especially this year. Um, And then just being confident in yourself is huge. Um, especially with all line play, like if, if you get beat, you know, it could feel like the world's just going to end and uh, you get so down on yourself, but it's like being able to move on to the next play and just being like, screw it. We're good. Next play. And just learn from that and uh, make sure it doesn't happen again type of thing. Yeah. Georgie, tell them about uh, your reset. Uh, I got somebody knocking at the door. I just got to take that for a second. But yeah, talk about your reset, Georgie. I'll be right back. Oh, yeah. Let's see, Tom. And when I was in college, I had an issue. Like, I was big, like, snowballer. Like, one bad thing would happen. And then, like, if I messed up, like, an individual drill, my practice was shot, like, the whole day. Like, oh, my God, my life's over. I got to get out of here. And it took me a couple years. But, like, I was at a reset thing um, when I was in college. I drew – I had my white wrist tape on. I drew, like, a big red circle on it every day for practice. And if I ever fucked up, I'll just like take a deep breath. I hit the red reset button and I'd be like, all right, on to the next play. And just having that mindset, as opposed to allowing things to snowball, that is the reason why I'm in the NFL today, because I stopped sucking for an entire practice and I would just suck for here. Hey, maybe one or two reps. All right, I got to get better at that. And also the realization that you can make mistakes as long as you're getting better from the mistakes. Well, and also that you are going to make mistakes. You got to. That, that is one thing. Like in the NFL, everybody on the field is a, an elite athlete. So, like, you're going to lose sometimes. Um, if you're Trent Williams, you might not lose. Nick Bosa, <laughs> you might not lose. But for us normal people, we might lose once in a while. You just got to be okay with that. But then you also have that mindset that, like, you don't want to ever get beat. And, like, hey, I'm going to win every rep. But you just have to be, like, able to shut off, hey, that one rep that didn't work. All right, we're past that. Now I'm not going to lose again. Uh, I think that's always worked really well for me. Do you have like a reset kind of tool like that, Tom? Like when you think of, you know, cause obviously our minds can kind of spin out and we can kind of get these negative voices in our head. Like this guy's way better than me. Or like, how am I going to, you know, how am I going to play against this next team? And like, you know, our mind starts to get the best of us. So when that happens to you, what do you like to do? Well, I don't have like a literal reset button on my wrist. I like that though. Um, uh, I, I totally get where you're coming from though. I, it took me years to figure that out. I wish I could have done that sooner. Um, but I think 
um, Kyle Shanahan, he really Im- implanted something, which was on the play that you mess up, like, what's your next play look like? And, like, so anytime that I have a bad play, I'm like, what am I going to do on this next play? Like, how do I respond to that shitty play I just had? And most recently, you know, it, it's been working a lot. Um, you know, before, you know, you might not be thinking about that. You might just be down because you're like, oh, I got beat. And you, it kind of, like you said, snowballs into the next play. But it's like, it's over. Like, what, what, what are you going to do on this next play? Like, how do you respond to that? So it's a lot, it's definitely along the same lines, like you're saying. It, and it's, it's tough to, to build that. Um, you don't, I don't think you just kind of are born with that unless you're just a freak, I guess. But, um, us mortals at least, uh, have to learn how to do that. And it takes a lot of time. Yeah. Indeed it does. I don't know. Did you watch the Monday night game with the Steelers and the Browns? Uh, most of it. I was kind of back and forth. But it was yeah. yeah. Well, I just felt like it's what happened. You know, that's a rookie right tackle. That kid was playing the Watt kid. And um, after the first sack, he just like his whole thing went down. He just kept, you know, he was just hand wristing his outside arm, you know, so he never had any leverage and he was getting around the corner so fast and he just never recovered from it. And you could just tell right from the, you know, his sets kind of went wacky the way he was leaning his foot, he just you could just see it was a progression and uh he'd gotten in his head and it was kind of over so that it it's really really important in that situation make sure you're kind of being able to flush it so all right sorry about that i missed i'm pretty sure did you tell the reset button story george yeah we we crushed the we cut we crushed the mindful awareness and performance section okay good why don't we okay. move on then? and now we're on to every fan's favorite favorite section the fashion review. Cutie look. Thank you. The fashion segment. Come at you live. Are you here? No, this is a wig. Oh, I literally wear. It's actually part of my hair. I wear a wig every Sunday <laughs> for the fans, for the people. Got it. But we get to talk about the fashion review. Um, Thomas is sexual. We talk about something that we might wear to the upcoming game. Um, you're a dad and all, so I know that your swag is unmatched. Do you have anything <laughs> for us you'd like to share with the fans? Uh, yeah, so I have zero game day swag. Um, it is, it's bad. Um, I have like a rotation of polos that I wear. It's all basic stuff. These are the shoes that I wear, like very, very basic Nike shoes. Um, I wear the same pair of black jeans every week and then just have a rotation of polos. So not a whole lot going on here. And what, what color? That. What color polos do you rotate? Do you have a like a rainbow color, or what do you, what do you got? Uh, no, I, I try to keep it kind of neutral. You know, gray, black, white, monochrome. My wife's shaking no. her head right now. Okay, but for for your lack of like eccentric game day outfit, I have to say you and Tiffany's Halloween swag is unmatched. And if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, go follow Tiffany Compton on Instagram. I died when I found your account and was going through. It is like, it is the best of the best. So just shout out to you guys. Yeah, we saved the swag for the holidays. Oh, it's the best. It's outstanding. What do you got? What do you got, George? My game day swag. Oh, hello. 
I know I, I showed them really quick. These are the new Jordans that just came out. Um, they're Jordan 11s. I'm pretty sure. But they're the cool grays. They're beautiful. They just came out. Um, I haven't worn them yet. I got a matching set for me and my wife. So Claire's excited oh. about them. Ooh. You have to get set, you have to get matching sets for the wife. But I'm excited to wear these. Um, they're beautiful. And uh, I think they're gonna they're gonna complete the fit this weekend, I think. Cool. And do we have a do we have a Claire update at all? Does she know what she's wearing yet? She does. She got a very, very cool hoodie. It's on her stories. Uh, if you guys want to go check it out. I can't remember oh. who it's by, but it's badass. Yeah, it's okay. got some, someone sent her like some custom hoodie that has a bunch of Joker stuff all over it and like football stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. So maybe she wears that with the cool grays. We'll, you know, Ooh. we'll figure it out. Um, but that's all we have for the fashion segment. Thank you, everyone. Um, you can go home now. Oh, good night. Okay, football. Cops, take it. Quick. Okay, Niners come in nine and seven, beat the Texans. Uh, Trey Lance's first game. We'll skip over that. Rams 12 and four, beat the Ravens 20 to 19 on last second play. Uh, but uh, let's see, teams have played 144 times in their history. Niners lead the series 74 to 67 with three ties. They've won the last five games versus the Rams in a row. Okay, Rams, they come in. They've won their last five games after a three-game skid in the middle of the season. Uh, and in there was the loss to the Niners where they came up to Levi's and put a beating on them 10 to 31 to 10. All right, and they're back home now after two successful road trips. They beat the Vikings and the Ravens in the last two games, so they've been on the road for a couple of weeks. Happy to be in the friendly confines of SoFi Stadium, the bowl. So just checking in. Uh, it's a little bit later in the week, so you guys might know a little bit more. But anyway, what do we know and what do you expect and any key players that you want to talk about? Wow. Tom, you want to, you want to, you want to give, give it a roll? You want me to go? Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll kind of start, I guess, and you can you have a different perspective a little bit. Um, but uh, obviously, this is the biggest game of our season. Um, so – you're going to see our best effort. You're going to see their best effort too, because they're fighting for the two seed. Yep. So uh, it's, it's going to be a body bag game, not just an ice bag game. Um, Ooh, I like it. And Ooh. yeah, let's, Tom, let's, let's clarify that. We mentioned this in the, in the pre-show notes, but I mean, Niners come in when you're in, if you lose the saints have to lose um, to the Falcons. And so that's pretty important for us. And as you said, the uh, Rams are looking to win, get the second seed by winning out the Western division outright. So pretty big game. Everybody's going to be playing everybody and it'll be a full, full match. Yeah. And um, I mean, obviously uh, goes without saying they're, you know, their front seven's impressive with Aaron Donald and the addition of Von Miller. Uh, it's, it's a really good group, solid group. And, um, you know, we're going to be on our best uh, handling those guys and, I don't know how much they do in the secondary. You might have more than that, George. Um, but it's, uh, you know, I got to play in this, this the first time we played them about half the game. And that was kind of my first experience of Rams 49ers. And um, it was fun. It was competitive. And uh, this one will be, I think, even more so. Yeah, uh, with you, Tom. I agree. It is uh, the biggest game of the year. Uh, it's crazy that everything just kind of comes down to this, isn't it? All the off-season stuff, all the things you went through in August and September. Whoo, baby, it's here. Uh, so I think uh, 
I know we're all excited. I think the vibe in the locker room uh, is good. The practice today was really good. I think just, you know, based on what we were doing and I think we're all happy with our game plan. And, you know, I think overall, you know, like Tom said, they've got a very, very talented front seven and they've also got a very talented back four. Um, they, they can kind of do it all. Uh, they have a very good offense. Uh, you know, Cooper cups, a hundred ish yards away from breaking the all time freaking uh, Megatron's record. Uh, that's decent, I guess. Shout out Coop. I'm a fan of him. Um, yeah, OBJ's having, you know, I think he has like five or six touchdowns in six games, which is pretty impressive. Um, and then, hey, Matt Stafford's not bad either. And they, they're getting their running back um, that tore his Achilles during OTAs. He's back and he's a freak. And I know he's going to probably run really, really hard because it's his first game back. Um, so, yeah, no, it's going to be a great game where you have to play at our best if we want to have a chance. That's basically what it is. And so I can't wait to go out there and watch our best players play their best ball and then um, other guys step up and play some spectacular ball. I, I can't wait to see it. Is that enough and of a break for you, Pops? I'm, I'm excited. Let's go, man. I'm getting in the car right now. I'm heading out. I'll be in L.A. All right. Perfect. All right, Tom, any final words on that? Are you good? It's perfectly wrapped up. I like that. I like, though, the body bag, not just an ice bag game. That's yeah. pretty good. I, I, real, real quick, I don't know if we've talked about this, but the ice bag game, Coach Shanahan's talked about that. I think the first time he brought it up, I think, I don't remember it before this, but like 2019, he like, uh, told the story of a, I think it was it a boxer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a boxer in a fight, and he was like, hey, this is going to be an ice bag game, be, an ice bag match or a fight because he knew that it's going to take absolutely every amount, piece amount of effort. And then when he came home, he was going to have to sit down and just ice his entire body because he's going to be so sore, so tired, exhausted uh, if he, to get through the whole fight. And he said that in 2019 when we went to the Rams, he said, hey, this is going to be an ice bag game. And holy cow, was it? That was, I think it was like 19 to 7 or something, maybe might have been the final score. But it was just it was just a physical game of football the entire way through. And that's kind of what it was. And he doesn't use that term often. But it's basically every time we play the Rams, it's about the same game. Is we have to play as physical as we possibly can uh, because that's what we're really good at is being physical. And now Tom is talking about the body bag game, which I 100% agree. It basically is. Don't sell out. Okay. All right. Well, excellent. Emma, any insights on the game you want to add? Um. This is going to be my first time at the stadium, so I'm pretty hyped about that. Thank you, boys. Um, so nice. So Pretty dialed in. Nice. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, as far as uh, another big part of our show is service and giving back. And so we're always looking to give back and to help others. So, Tom, um, what community, community-based activities have you been involved with uh, while being in the NFL? Um, we are kind of talking about this a little bit earlier. And, uh, you know, each team I've been on, you know, they have a great community outreach program. Um, and I'm not like, uh, I don't have my own kind of stuff that I do. I, I try to just help out with others and their things. So, um, back in Washington, um, it was getting toys for kids around Christmas. Um, with the Falcons, there's a lot of stuff for veterans, like each, each team kind of does a lot of good stuff with the communities. And, um, I guess like the, the biggest thing that uh, I'd been a part of was with Minnesota, um, a friend of mine growing up who I played uh, football with my whole childhood. He 
came to me about, uh, it's called Hope Fieldhouse, and they're trying to build it in our hometown of Rosemount. And there's just not like an area for kids to do sports or after school stuff. And it was just a great opportunity to have a sports complex in our hometown because a lot of times teams will have to go to different surrounding cities to compete, whether it's basketball, volleyball, baseball, any of that stuff. And so they, um, they finally got that built last year, two years ago. And, um, I guess it's been taken off. I, I still need to get back. And I think this off season, um, we're going back in the summer to check it out. And, uh, it's just an awesome opportunity for the community to have, uh, sporting events or really anything to get together, which is something I was jacked to get a part of. Does it have a statue of you out front? Uh, no, no, I, I hope not at least. <laughs> no, like you, like you spiking a football. That's what it should be. During uh, I, uh, not me. <laughs> cool. All right. Uh, let's see. All right. Any other, uh, well, good. And so just kind of general encouragement and yeah, the Niners do a whole bunch of stuff and there's a lot of things going in there. So, all right, George, you want to close it out? Yes. Thomas, the last part of our show. It's very easy. Um, all right, so we kind of go with your where is the hope is the question, right? Um, so like just something that gives you hope, whether it's today, whether it's been this past year, something that's happened in your life that makes you excited uh, about moving forward. Um, so like, for example, I started one off was like back in September, I, something that gave me hope was football being back. Another thing was fans being in the stadium, um, the holidays, being around family, like just things like that that give me hope. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll start this one off too. I actually haven't thought about it yet, but I'm going to think of one really quick, but let's see something that gives me hope the start of the new year. Uh, it really does 2022, um, just getting through another year. Um, and it's just kind of crazy how fast they go, the older you get. Um, that's been a wild ride for me, but just, uh, the anticipation of like an entire year ahead of you. And I know like we saw, we're in the end of our season, but it's like the, it's just the start of your new year. Like what, what can you accomplish this year? What can you do? What changes can you make to make you a better person? There's just, um, I feel like it's just kind of an overall mood or kind of around the world or um, it's just like, Hey, like what is going to be different this year? Um, and I think that's just kind of a, that anticipation is kind of exciting and it makes me hopeful. It makes me excited. Um, but yeah, that is one thing that gives me hope. And also side note, this is one thing I just have to say it and it, you can yell at me for it. But so 2022, if you spell out, so 2022 is just saying 2022. So it's saying it's the same year. And I saw that on Instagram and I was like, oh my gosh, that's the smartest, dumbest thing I've ever seen in my yes, entire life. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> so, I was so angry when I, I like, saw it. The it's the smartest, dumbest thing I've ever seen. But when I saw it, I was like, yeah, yeah. New year of 2020. Two. That bothered me. Run anyway, it run it back. All right, Tom. What gives you hope this year? Um, gosh, it might be a little. It's not as like big picture as that. Uh, it might be a little more selfish, but um, just the opportunity to be a dad. Um, it's crazy. It it's different. I got him right here. He's eating. I mean that. Right there. (laughs) He's milk drunk. That that gives me hope. Um, Just, you know, trying to set a good example. Um, 
and showing them how to do things the right way. Um, it's really actually changed. I mean, obviously everything in my life, but just how I go about with football, um, definitely more, more locked in, um, more prepared and, uh, going out there every play, playing it like it's my last because it definitely could be. So that's kind of where I'm at with that. That's well, awesome. Well, there's nothing like it. I would say most impactful thing other than getting married was having those two little squirts right there. And so it totally changes your life and, you know, center of the universe completely changes. So that's pretty cool. So, well, we're hopeful with those two little babies in your place. That's pretty cool. Woo! And your gorgeous wife, Tiffany. So congratulations for all that. Tom, we just want to say thank you so much for sharing time and really appreciate all the insights about your career. I mean, that's really helpful. I mean, I think that's really good stuff. So wish you the very best and uh, we'll be watching. Obviously we'll be in the stands checking you out and uh, watching those pass sets and uh, terrorizing those uh, poor Rams all, the whole game. So uh, you tell Vaughn hello for me when you see him. Okay. All right, Emmy, anything you want to add? No, thank you so much, Tom. Thanks, Tom. I'll see you tomorrow, locker buddy. You know, last fun fact, me and Tom Compton, our lockers face each other this way. Ooh. He's right next to Jimmy G too, but we're like a solid 10 feet away from each other at all times. Nice. And I, it's wonderful. It's just. It's definitely the best area of the locker room for sure the best view was that what you're gonna say <laughs> <laughs> i did sound like you get a peek was... of uh a tattoo you have now i didn't oh, know oh. relax oh, that's public knowledge but actually uh fun fact if you watch i greg olson made me uh show it while filming pardon my take no free shout outs but yeah i, I definitely did and then they screenshot it and put it on twitter it was sick good Good. Thanks. Thanks, guys. <laughs> well, yeah, right. thanks for having me. I was, that was awesome. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Tom. See you, man. Well, good luck. Let's finish it out. All right. See you, Thomas. Thank you. All right. Here we are. We are with, I'm going to read the bio for Gunnery Sergeant Chris Holm uh, with the United States Marines. So we'll try to do that. Born in West Covina. Is that right, mm -hmm. Chris? Covina. Yeah, Covina. Okay. Yeah. California to Matthew Holm and Caroline Thompson, another radical family where the wife kept her maiden name, I'm guessing. So as my wife did, actually, it was worse for my, because I got married and a year later, she changed her name back from mine to her maiden name because she couldn't deal with it. But that's a whole other story. All right. Uh, Chris is happily married to his wife, Melissa, and together they have three children, sons, Ryan and Peyton and daughter, Emma. Uh, he's a gunnery sergeant, gunnery sergeant, U.S. Marine Corps and a fire support chief assigned to 1st Battalion, 11th Marines, based out of Camp Pendleton, California. He has four combat, combat tours to Iraq and Afghanistan and one tour on the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit. His likes and hobbies range from spending time with family, all things Star Wars, so that's a good chat. We should pr probably put a, some of that in. Grilling, smoking <laughs> meats on Sunday, watching the Niners, playing video games, and much much more. So, Chris, want to welcome you. Thank you for taking the time to be on the podcast. All right. Then our other guest. Thank you for having me. You bet. Yeah, welcome. Okay. So, next guest we have on is Alec Mayhem, a good family friend. So, born on April 5th, 1996, to David Mayhem and Marcia Picone in Denver, Colorado, attended the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, graduated in 2000. Oh, yeah. You know, I always forget you went to Ann Arbor. Like, come I know, on. Yeah. 
Come on. Uh, with a degree in economics, commissioned in the Marine Corps in 2018, uh, currently serves as first lieutenant at 1st Battalion, 11th Marines, as a fire support officer, um, has one deployment on the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit as an artillery platoon commander. Hobbies mainly revolve around around the outdoors of Southern California. We love that, including skiing, running, surfing, hiking, and CrossFit. Enjoys watching football, movies, and visiting friends when given the opportunity with work. Pops, these kind of sound like dating profiles, the way that you wrote them. I mean, like, I, I like them, but oh, like- no, I wrote them, so maybe- they wrote oh, you wrote them? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is so not how you usually write these. Like, what is going on? Okay. Well, well Alex- I know. Well, read that, and then I'll, then I'll tell the rest of the story. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So Alec has known Chris since they deployed on the 15th Mew in 2020. They have worked in the same section for the past six plus months. Uh, most Mondays are spent talking about the last Niners game. Love that. Ooh, ooh, all right. Okay. Um, all right. And then, uh, so Pops, tell us about that. But then we also have to get into a little. So uh, Alex's dad, Dave, uh, is good buddies with Pops. And that's kind of how the whole connection has started. So dad, how did, how did we get here? Yeah. So this is how we got here. But I was just going to say most of the other bios I get, they're like three pages and they're acronyms. Like I've got no clue. Right. And then all this stuff. So which guys, if you're watching, that's not a complaint, but we've had to decipher. We spent a lot of time. These were great, Alex. So I really thank you for that. So it gives us a little nutshell and then we'll get into some more stuff in detail later. So, all right. Yeah. yeah so back in the day. All right. So Dave Mahan. All right. Originally from Nebraska, Omaha, Nebraska, I believe. Right. Was it Omaha yeah. South? I can't remember. He's told me a bunch of yeah. stories about his glory days back in Omaha and what a badass he was. And all that shit. But anyway, yeah, sure he did. so Dave and I both played at the University of Iowa. We both played offensive line. And so got to know each other there. Uh, Dave, uh, much smarter than I ever was, really went to class and studied, but actually was a very, very good football player as well. So we've been very good friends since then. And actually, in my senior year, I had a knee injury about halfway through the season when we were at the University of Michigan and defeated them 9-7 to seven when they were ranked <laughs> third in the country. Thank you very much. That's back in Yeah, he showed, me, he showed me that game and yeah. broke it down play by play. Oh, yeah, 1981, yeah. Anyway, so uh, actually, you know, Iowa had the best winning percentage against uh, Michigan from 85 to 92. Almost, or, well, no, through the 90s, almost until 2001 or so of any team in the country. It was really weird. But anyway, that's another story. Uh, so anyway, uh, when we were doing all this, so Dave and I kind of stay in touch on some other things, um, mostly kind of, you know, a little bit of holding each other accountable and just, you know, what are you doing for goals and all that kind of stuff and uh, swapping stories about our kids and all that thing. But uh, when he found out that we were doing, we had the podcast and what we were doing for our theme, he obviously went through and we have kind of followed Alex's career uh, really forever because our family loves going to Colorado and we would always come out hit Denver, stay with the Mayhans for about two days, get a little climatized, you know, to the elevation. And then we'd often head off in the mountains, go camping somewhere and climb a couple 14ers. So uh, we saw Alec as he was growing up over those years. I mean, a lot of years in a row there for a while. So that was kind of our standard summer trip. So anyway, and then uh, upon the decision from high school, you were interested in lacrosse, I believe. And God, yep. I think there was a recruiting connection for lacrosse at Michigan. And then when you eventually got there, I'm not sure exactly what all happened with that, but I know then got involved with the Marines and school and all that kind of stuff. And after you were done. So anyway, so Dave called and said, Hey, you know, I was talking to Alec and his gunnery sergeant, Chris Holm, uh, they're in Southern California. And if you guys are doing that, would there be a game that it would work out for them to be on the show, which it sounded like a great connection. So we're glad to, to do that, Alec, just to see you. 
but I, and I said this before we got going, a lot of it was, and I, I can't share that for Dave, and I'm, I'm sure that you're going to see him on Sunday because he'll be at the game when we go down to the Rams. Um, a very, very heartfelt level of gratitude toward you, Chris, uh, for your role in Alex's life and taking care of him and shepherding. And I don't want to overstate it or under it. I don't really know all the details. I'm just repeating right. kind of what, what Dave shared with me and um, felt a very deep sense of gratitude and uh, thankfulness uh, for your role with Alec. So while he was beaming with pride too, and let me know all the great things that Alec had done as well. So, which is all very, very cool. So we're very proud of you as well, Alec. Chris, thank you for all the things that you have done for him and for I'm sure all of the men and women that you have shepherded over the years and have taken care of. So, which it kind of sounds like that's what a gunnery sergeant does, try to help people not get shot right away and learn this list. But anyway, so that's how we kind of got here. So anyway, all right. Alec, you want to add anything or is that okay? Is that pretty decent? Yeah, no, oh. that, that sounds great. You know what I, what I started to say when at Michigan, I got derailed there because I got excited thinking about beating Michigan again. But um, when I got hurt that game and then uh, David had been playing guard for the most part and he was rotating in on that. And then he took my place at left tackle actually. Uh, and kind of finished out the year. And then I came back, we played the bowl game, kind of shared time together again. But anyway, he did a great job because he really never played much offensive tackle and got to fill in there the, the last part of the season for that. So anyway, so it all worked out. So we've been good friends ever since and very grateful. He's uh -huh. also, he also went to law school though. So we both went through that thing. So we've kind of traded law stories over the years as well. So, and yeah. he has a much, deep, much deeper love for the profession than I ever did. So I give him credit for that. Yes, Emmy, go. Um, so George and I, like, we were pretty athletic growing up and I never felt more unathletic than when we would come to your house and you'd be like, play lacrosse with us. And we're like, what? <laughs> what is this sport? Like just no concept of it. Like you made it look so easy. And George was like, oh yeah, we can do this. It was like, it was not good. It was like, we were playing with our eyes closed. So yeah. there's a whole different level of hand-eye coordination with that sport. Yeah. It was always kind of funny when you guys would come over because it was like, you know, the Midwest kind of typical childhood and then like a Colorado childhood. I mean, a lot of similarities, but you know, different hobbies and things like that. We kind of right. always swap those. Different yep. language, different language. Okay. Well let's, uh, Chris, we'll start with you, but we want to get a little backstory on you. So growing up in enlistment, uh, maybe take us all the way back. So what was family life like for you? And maybe uh, what were some of the toughest or best lessons that you learned from your family as you were growing up? Okay. Um, so growing up as a kid, you know, I wouldn't say anything too crazy, you know, average life, uh, uh kid life, I guess. Um, it was right about before high school. Unfortunately, my parents got a divorce, uh, went through that whole thing. That's why it said Caroline Thompson on there. Um, wow. because she kept the name of her uh, next husband. Um, but, uh, yeah, I got, went through a divorce, went through all that type of stuff. Um, another fun time, especially for, you know, a young teenager, you know, uh, you know, uh, growing up and whatnot. Um, so I definitely learned a lot from that as far as like, you know, uh, you know, how to deal with certain things, uh, had to, you know, grew up at a pretty young age to make some pretty adult decisions as far as like, Hey, who are you going to stay with, you know, mom or dad or, or something like that. So it was kind of rough during that time frame. But, uh, uh, other than that, I mean, you know, I played high school football, uh, loved it. I was probably the skinniest uh, defensive end on my team. Uh, I think my senior year, I was probably like 165, 170 playing DN. And the average, average. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> baby. Come on. Was like, yeah. like 225 and up. So, you know, it was like stick man on the field with a helmet and uh, shoulder pads. But, uh, you no, played lacrosse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have lacrosse in my area. It was like 
football, soccer, baseball, and that was about it. You know, we didn't have much of a program up in uh, Taft, California. Um, so, but other than that, I mean, you know, it was decent. Like I said, a, a couple ups and downs here and there, but, you know, grew from it, learned from it. Uh, I think it's definitely uh, uh, show me, you know, influenced the way that, you know, me being a father nowadays, you know, how I handle things, how I work with my, you know, one and only uh, love my life, my wife, Melissa, you know, uh, we're a great team, you know, take care of our kids and, you know, just, yeah. Yeah. And then, then came Marine Corps. <laughs> yes. Well, so uh, what drew you to enlistment then? And when did you enlist and then why the Marines? Um, I would say probably the biggest influence in my life that definitely led to me joining the Marine Corps was my grandfather, uh, Donald Holm. Uh, he was uh, originally a Marine, then uh, was drafted into the Army after he was medically discharged from the Marine Corps uh, after an injury. Uh, Korean War kicked off. He got drafted. And he was a machine gunner in the Korean War. Um, got Purple Heart, you know, served honorably, came back and started his family. And really, he was like a big influence in my life, especially driving me towards the Marine Corps. Uh, told me all kinds of crazy stories and whatnot. Um, but that was the biggest thing. And then uh, the other thing, too, was just seeing like the commercials, reading brochures, you know, seeing, you know, advertisements for the Marine Corps. And, you know, it's like, OK, you know, I'm kind of interested in this. I want to challenge myself. And, you know, sure, sure enough, when I enlisted in 2002, uh, you know, went to boot camp you know discovered what i was looking for and almost 20 years later here we are it's been been heck of a ride too and meeting all kinds of great people going through a lot of uh you know tough unique and great situations um meeting great people like alec which is weird to call you alec i'm used to calling you sir i know yeah we we had to talk about that (laughs) yeah so it's like yeah fit rebel flick anyways um but uh no it's 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 been it's been an adventure for sure um but it all started pretty much with my grandfather um, you know, my father definitely, you know, uh, shared some stuff, you know, some stories of me being a soldier as well, but, uh, I chose the Marine Corps because uh, I wanted the toughest branch. So. All right. Well, good. Well, Alec, just, I mean, we kind of talked about your growing up in Denver and your mom and dad and your set family setting and all that, which I know pretty well just from being around them. But what, what were some of the, talk to us a little bit about, you know, maybe some core lessons from family you know, that you look back on that you took that have helped shape you a little bit. And then tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Marine Corps and eventually enlisted after college. Yeah, um, I, I guess so. Kind of similar to Chris, like a lot of family background with the military. And that was something that my dad actually talked about a lot um, because, you know, after Iowa, after football, I don't know if you got to remember like what was going on with his eye. Uh, but he had to have surgery pretty quickly and like that kind of transitioned him. Um, and I think he was just medically ineligible. And that was something that he always wanted to do because two of his brothers did it. Um, his father, my grandfather was a medic in uh, World War II through, you know, most of the second half of the war in Europe. So that was something that, you know, was kind of always brought on as, you know, an honorable thing to do, you know, a sense of service. Um, so growing up, I always kind of figured that that was going to be something I wanted to do. Um, you know, having two parents who are lawyers, my mom was not going to let me enlist right away. Right. That was college was always kind of the first thing you had to do. Um, but you know, that stick that stuck with me, you know, when I was at Michigan and kind of just looking at all the different paths, uh, kind of drew me to the Marine Corps around the second half of my time at Michigan. Uh, so I got interested there, kind of joined a program that allowed kind of 
transition into the, you know, doing the officer thing towards the second half and uh, kind of started from there. Once I graduated, I did some training before my senior year, uh, officer candidate school then um, in 2017 and then commissioned in 2018 and kind of have been doing it ever since. All right. Well, very good. Okay. All right. We got the background story. All right. Roll Emma. Go. Check. Check. <laughs> um, so Chris, um, <laughs> when did you go to basic training and uh, where was it for you? Can you kind of take us through that process? Maybe like what day one was like for you? Oh, sure. Uh, so I originally enlisted from uh, Temecula. Uh, out of that station. And then I went to boot camp in San Diego, MCRD San Diego. Um, I went to boot camp uh, 18 November 2002 and graduated Valentine's Day 2003. Uh, so that's when my journey into the Marine Corps began. Um, and boot camp for on the enlisted side, I know it's a lot different for the officers, but for the enlisted side, it's pretty down and dirty from like minute one. You're, it's go, 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 sprint, sprint, sprint. Um, everyone's screaming at you. They're, they're, Back then, grabbing you, yanking you around, stuff like that. Um, definitely in your face, and it's it's a, a culture shock, uh, for sure. Um, but uh, it, it definitely, you know, like like it says in the brochures and whatnot, boot camp breaks you down from being a nasty civilian. No offense, sorry. That's what we call it. But that's what I used to say for my recruits whenever I was a recruiter. So nasty. Um, <laughs> but uh that break you down as a civilian and then build you back up as a marine with like our you know leadership values principles ethos all that stuff simplify all that crap and then uh from there you're uh raw marine ready to rock and roll and going to the next step but uh it's definitely a humbling experience uh, regardless of your background uh when you go through boot camp graduate you're like holy crap that was probably the toughest thing i've ever been through aside from my combat you know but uh it was, it was a good experience um, I'm glad I don't have to ever do it again, but it was a good experience. What was like the biggest wake up call for you as you were first started that process? Uh, having another grown man tell you when you can go to the bathroom and when you can't, that was definitely an experience. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure, uh, uh, Alec could definitely test that for OCS, uh, having drill instructors yeah. as well. But yeah, just, you know, she got a PRO bag of information. It's like, nope, you're going to wait. I'm like, okay, this sucks, but okay. <laughs> Uh, no, uh, in, in hindsight, is it's that uh, that sense of discipline that the Marine Corps version of discipline, what they instill into you, and it's a uh, it's very eye opening. But at the same time, it sticks with you. Um, it's something, and it's a lot of things you could definitely play uh, later on in life. So yeah. Um, okay. Well, Alec, what about what about you? Um, yeah. So I mean, I think there's always kind of the age old question, and I don't think it's really a contest. You know, boot camp versus officer candidate school. They try to make it try to make it similar, um, but you know, go through the the first things initially. And I definitely think that, that was a big wake up call, especially for me, kind of being I would say more ignorant to you know those kind of like enlistments and posters, things like that. Like that was never really what I want to do. I kind of just was like, I want to go be a marine. And I think probably for you know like my my recruit, it was pretty easy because I just in two weeks, you know, I already submitted my application, and everything. So. Um, but I didn't really know what I was getting into. You know, I didn't know rank structure, things like that, like very basic stuff. I just kind of walked in pretty, pretty random. So I think that, you know, those first few days, I remember just like you losing, losing your phone, talking to your loved ones. Um, and I think the one thing for, for us is, you know, they just, they, they put you in these, in these lines, they scream at you all night, the first night, things like that, just to kind of rattle you. And it just, yeah, I guess, it, you know, in hindsight, you're, you're like, oh, that wasn't that bad. But at the time, there's definitely that, like, sense of, like, 
I, I should just turn around right now. Like there's no way. This is not what I wanted to do. This is what I thought I was going to be doing, you know? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say one thing for sure. Ask any Marine, like, you know, uh, if you want to like get an idea of like uh, what Marine boot camp is like, ask Marine what his drone instructor's names are and he'll tell, tell you their names. Like for me, it was drill instructor, staff sergeant Pipkin, drill instructor, staff sergeant O'Brien, drill instructor, staff sergeant Hicks, and senior drill instructor, staff sergeant Gray. And that was almost 20 years ago. And those dudes definitely had influenced my life. And I'm, uh, I'm sure, Alec, you probably do the same thing, more or less. I'm not putting on your spot, though. But No, I remember two of them, but not. I can't name all three, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> so, and then, Alec, for you, like, because you're the first person that we've talked to that was that enlisted, like, in college then. So were you, did you do that all through Ann Arbor? Yeah. Yeah. There was a recruiting station. So for the differences in officer selection office, so they start to recruit um, people who are attending college or who have a college degree and put them on the, the officer track. So that's kind of the difference between me and Chris. Like he went up through the enlisted side. I went up through the officer side and then, you know, kind of where he's at now um, kind of our, our roles match up to some extent, but there, there's a lot of differences, you know, we could kind of go, I'm sure more into depth on like work and things like that but of course and any uh any big lesson that you learned from basic training uh yeah just humility um i want to say i actually i've I kept a lot of my books um like our little kind of like right in the rain notebooks um and i remember my platoon commander at the time he the first thing he did we wrote pulled up a page and he's like i want you to write as large as you can to fit the page it's not about you um, and I think that that was something that really has stuck with me since then. Like I still have it. I've carried it, you know, through multiple apartments, houses from Virginia to Oklahoma to California. And like, anytime I have to remember that, like it's, that it's not about you. Like it, it's about the Marines that you're serving. Um, cause like they're not serving you. That's kind of what you, what you want to learn as an officer. Um, that's been the most important lesson that I think I learned. That's a pretty powerful lesson really for a lot of folks because a lot of folks spend their entire lives thinking that the, every, they're the center of the universe and everything's rolling around them and it's a constant narrative and story about them. And um, there's a great, I'm kind of a stoic reader myself, so the guy's got a great book out. Um, one of them is uh, Ego's the Enemy and it's a lot about you know displacing that with an eye toward the greater good and how we serve community using our skill sets and doing some of those kind of things. But um, some kind of awareness that not everything is about you. In fact, really hardly any. <laughs> Just about yeah. nothing. It's, it's a pretty small little pool. So good. Yeah. All right, great. All right. Then let's see. All right. What in the heck's a gunnery sergeant? Why is that different than a staff sergeant, all them other sergeants? So there's a whole string of them. So tell us about the whole sergeant thing and why is it, what is a gunnery and why is it different? What do you do? Okay. Uh, so for a gunner sergeant, um, it's E7 on the enlisted side as far as like the pay scale. It's the seventh rank. Um, so it's a staff NCO or staff non-commissioned officer, um, but it's more of a senior staff NCO, senior leadership uh, on the enlisted side. Um, biggest thing is being that experienced, you know, uh, a service member. It's been around the block a few times, you know, it's gone through all the ranks and now make sure that, you know, supervising the setup of training classes, make sure Marines know where they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do, um, and then pretty much supervise, you know, staff sergeants on down, make sure they're doing their job, make sure they're, they're where they're supposed to be at. But at the same time, also advising officers as far as like, you know, uh, working with Alec or working with a bunch of the other 
first lieutenants or captains we have in our section, you know, and bringing my experiences from past deployments, you know, techniques and tactics that have worked, that haven't worked, and being able to help, you know, guys like Alec out to make, you know, sound decisions. And at the same token, you know, he's going to make the, the call at the end of the day, like, hey, we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And, I, you know, I back him up and support him on that and make sure the troops know, like, hey, we're doing this. So it's like a, a supervi- uh, you know, supervisor of the supervisors on down, if you will. But at the same time, I'm also that conduit that links back to the E8s, the first sergeants, the master sergeants, sergeants, major, master guns, being able to be like, hey, this is what the Marines are doing. This is how we're accomplishing the mission, which then leads back up to like, you know, the majors, the colonels, generals, and so on. So being a good okay. sergeant is probably one of the best ranks. I love it. Oh, there you, okay. All right, very good. All right. Well, then, First Lieutenant Mahan. Yeah. Tell us, like, tell us uh, for those those nasty civilians, uh, enlighten us on where First <laughs> Lieutenant. There are people who have told us that. I feel like people have been lying to us. Yeah. Uh, tell us where. Uh, where's, where's, where's that fit in? Like, where have you been through and all that kind of stuff? And. When are you going to be a general and all that kind of thing? What's happening? Uh, yeah, that, that'll, be, uh, th- that'll be a day. But um, yeah, so when you commission um, right out of, um, you know, for me, it was a week after I graduated college. You commission as a second lieutenant, uh, which is 01, like the first rank. And two years after your commissioning date, uh, I don't know if it's the same for all the branches. I would assume so. But I know in the Marine Corps, two years after you commission, you pin on first lieutenant. And then... Um, for us, it's, it's kind of different. You go up to captain and then major and things like that. But first lieutenant is kind of the, the middle of the company grade. So kind of, you know, what you would imagine who deal with platoons, companies, the most connected to the Marines. Um, so where I'm at right now, I'm kind of finishing up my first, first contract. But you, it's an interesting rank, I think, for the lieutenants because, you know, a second, like me as second lieutenant Mahan, when I commissioned in May, even though I've only done three months of training, was different than me two years down the road. And then sure. when I picked up first lieutenant about a year and a half ago, that's a, you know, it's a different person than in first lieutenant now. So I would say for us, it's just a little bit like you, you spend a little bit more time in those ranks, um, you know, early on. So it's a little bit interesting, but yeah, that's where I'm at right now. And then we'll kind of move up from there. All right. And you mentioned that toward the end of your first contract, you're just like the NFL players, you know, you're on a contract. Uh, yep. So, are you negotiating a new? Are you re- renegotiating your second contract, or what? The, what are the plans for that? Yeah, so I mean, kind of just figuring out next steps, and you know where that'll all all fit. You know, when you're when you're several months out, you kind of just have to start figuring, you know, what the Marine Corps wants you to do, and then you know if you're looking to transition out, things like that. So, you know, I think everyone goes through the periods where they're you know unsure of the next steps, and you know, it's kind of where I'm at right now. All right. Very cool. We're figuring it out. Okay. Uh, then, well, Chris, do you have any, uh, when, can you tell us a little bit about when you first met, met Alec and uh, any good stories about him that you can share? Um, so when I first met him, it was actually at the FSCC in our office because uh, he came from uh, India, correct? India yep. Battery? Yeah, he came over to, from India Battery over to our section to uh, do the fire support role. Um, we did deploy together, but he was on a different ship than me. I was on the Macon Island. I believe you're on the San Diego. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we didn't have a whole lot of interaction there, but uh, you know, when I met him in the section, you know, right off the bat, you know, thought he was just absolutely great guy, great leader. Um, definitely knows his stuff. Uh, wasn't afraid to voice his opinion, which I think is awesome. Uh, being able to have the the cones to get up there and, and say what's on your mind, 
say if something is going to work, not going to work. Um, and be did able you to say, like, did you say cojones? Balls, you know, eggs. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. I'm good. I just like, no, like. Let me say balls first. No, I've used it and all that. I just like, it's kind of a term of art. I like it. So that's like marine sophistication. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the kids say nowadays. I'm old. So. No, no, no. That's well. I'm 62, so like I'm okay, super old. Yeah, I got no. Idea. I'm used to that, but, uh, so that was good. No, absolutely. But um, but yeah, the biggest thing is just you know, right off the bat, um, him and uh, a lot of his fellow uh, first lieutenants that came to our section, just all the same, which I think is great. Um, especially you know, being a marine officer, you, you definitely need to be that. Um, uh, we don't have any crazy stories yet. I mean, we haven't. He hasn't been around me long enough to get in trouble uh, with me. So uh, then that's actually a good thing. <laughs> but, you know, uh, overall, all seriousness, uh, great guy. He takes care of the Marines, which is like the biggest thing for me is taking care of the Marines. And that's what he does. And I appreciate that for sure. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Alec, all right. What, what do you remember about meeting the gunnery sergeant? And uh, how did that go? And any, any stories about the gunnery sergeant when you and all the top flight officers are in the back room? <laughs> smoking cigs and drinking coffee and telling stories about the enlisted guys. What, what do you I would guys say? That's the, I would say that's the gunnies more. They, they like to hang out in the back room. Oh, do they? That, that's more of an intimidating. You know, I got to knock on it. I'm kind of afraid to go in there, but um, so, I mean, yeah. So like Chris said, we were deployed on the same, uh, the same Mew, um, but the way artillery officers work, it's a little bit different. I can do either fire direction or fire support. So I was on the fire direction side, like actually working with the cannons. And then Chris was the fire's chief. So even though he probably didn't really know who I was because I was a smaller role at the time, I had definitely heard his name. Um, and then, you know, we tangentially, you know, had worked together in exercises and things like that while we were on the deployment, um, even though we never really worked together. And like he said, once I ended up coming over to the fire support section, that's when we actually started to kind of have more of like a direct day-to-day -day working relationship. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well, any, any other story from that deployment you guys want to share? I mean, I don't know exactly what all you guys did. Sounds like you're on some damn big boats going across the ocean, shooting off some guns, but I, I don't know what else is there to cannons. Yeah. It was the COVID tour from hell. <laughs> ah, as uh, when, when we were on that uh, deployment, that's when uh, COVID was at its worst. And so, we originally had an itinerary for different spots we we're supposed to go to, but it completely changed because a lot of ports and places were shutting down because of COVID. So we were very limited to what we could actually do. Uh, but we did spend some time in, you know, specific areas, whether it was like, you know, Africa or whether it was like, you know, uh, the Middle East. So, you know, we did go places, but probably not the spots that, you know, here I wanted to go to, especially what we were originally tracking. But uh, all in all, you know, I mean, it is what it is. That was my first new ever because I'm used to just doing combat tours. So, but right. uh, yeah, it was a uh, suck wearing masks on ship and trying to stay six feet away when you really don't have a whole lot of room in the boat. So, so right. Yeah. And did you, did you have outbreaks on the ship? Did you have some? So the main island. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of cases. I think the San Diego actually had the worst, right? Yeah. There were some cases. Um, you know, I think it was just more of like a perennial problem like yeah. just kind of like a common theme throughout which you know it was no different than the real world but i think you know when you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean you know and of, that's your world right you kind of think that that's yeah. what's going on but um yeah so just to kind of like background off of like what chris meant when he said like wasn't what we were planning on going to the difference with a a, a mu traditionally is 
you do, I mean, obviously they have force response and things like that, but when you go out, a lot of times you're, you're expecting to like stop at different ports, um, different areas, you know, whether it be in like Southeast Asia, um, up through the Asian countries, uh, India, the Middle East, things like that. So it's traditionally for a Marine deployment. That's not like in Iraq or Afghanistan where you're going somewhere for six months. Uh, you're, you're expected. It, it's almost a cruise to some extent. So that's, uh. If, if you hit it on a right, on a right tour, you're expected, you know, you're going to stop in 15 ports or whatever and see, basically see the world for free. Got it. So that's, that's a pretty good deployment or at least, yeah, le- least threatening if you're not facing a global pandemic. Of course. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, cool. Then, well then, um, Chris, so you know, so you've got four other deployments, which included, I'm guessing, I don't know, one or two in Iraq and a couple in Afghanistan over the years that you've been out. Those those aren't just a cruise where you're nope. seeing the ports and all that kind of stuff. So um, I don't know. I'm just going to kind of toss it up. I don't know what, you know, how were those, you know, what you feel comfortable sharing about with us, but, um, you know, wherever you want to go with that. But I mean, I, I know folks always very curious about those because you see things on the TV and the movies and yeah. read things and all that kind of stuff. So just what was a little bit of your reality with those things? And and I guess the other piece is just, well, why don't you do that? And then just, you know, obviously, you know, how it was coming back and forth. I mean, four deployments seems like that's up there a ways, you know I mean? That's a lot of deployments. Um, and so how you've kind of dealt with that, but you know, where did you go? What happened? If you want to share any of that. Sure. Absolutely. And, and just to kind of clarify too, if I didn't do recruiting, probably would have been uh, even more combat tours, but it, you know, it just worked out that way. And I had to do recruiting for a few years, but uh, um, kind of start off. My dad was a cop. And so, you know, obviously being a cop, you know, you, you hear stories of what happens on the street, you know, the pe- kind of people he had to deal with the kind of evil that, you know, humans are capable of. And in, as a kid, you don't really grasp that. Like, sure. You watch a couple war movies or some, you know, uh, uh, you know, horror movies or something like that. And it's just, that's Hollywood. Um, but going on my first combat tour to Ramadi, Iraq in 05, that's where you get the first taste of like, just how truly evil humans can be and dealing with Al Qaeda back then, but that was the flavor of the day, uh, in Ramadi, uh, then with those guys seeing like what happened to the actually legitimately good people over there that just simply want to live their life, want to take care of their families and just, you know, go day by day. Um, you get over there and you do your job and yeah, you know, you see some gruesome stuff, stuff that sticks with you and it's not pleasant. Um, but you know, uh, the important thing was we're going over there to try to help those people best we can. And that was my first tour, um, got out, came back in for a couple of years, excuse me, a couple of years and went over to the East coast for my next set of deployments, both to Sang in Afghanistan, uh, 2010 and then, uh, 2012, uh, both winter deployments. Kind of the same thing, just different setting this time around. Instead of like Iraq being like a nice built up city, brick and mortar and stuff like that. This time it's like, you know, mud huts, grass, you know, you know, just rickety shelters put together. But it's the same old story. You know, this time, you know, Taliban, you know, pulling their stuff, suppressing legitimately good people. And uh, just, you know, just uh, a crappy way of life, you know, and. Coming back home from all four of those tours, you know, two to Iraq, two to Afghanistan, you definitely appreciate what you have here, you know. Um, It always bugs me when I hear in the media, like, people complaining about certain things or trying to cancel someone or something like that. I'm like, y'all are lucky, man, the way of life that we have it here. Because you go over there, 
it is nothing. And you can see the news now what's happening with Iraq and Afghanistan, just, you know, once again, going downhill. Um, but my time over there, as gruesome as it was, I do know that myself and my fellow Marines, we at least did what we could to try to help those people out, try to have a better life, you know. And for the ones that made, managed to get out of there, you know, make it over here or, or another free country, you know, hopefully, you know, they live a better life than what they were living over there. And like I said, I definitely appreciate what I have, the people I have, you know, all that stuff now because of all that. But yeah. And I'll spare like the, the gory details and all that. And I mean, you know, I'm sure other people have shared the same things that I would share anyways. So. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's all good. It's your story. And so I just, yeah, I kind of appreciate that reflection in those pieces. So, well then um, what about, I guess, you know, some of those comings and goings. So, I mean, some of the folks that we've talked with, you know, throughout this year and even before that, um, you know, the transitions back were, you know, those, those tours either left the mark or they carried some things back with them and all that kind of pieces. So can you talk a little bit then? I mean, how long has it been then since your last, you know, military combat deployment then? How, how long has that been? So the last combat tour was 2015. Um, when we okay. went back to uh, al-Baghdadi, Iraq, to reopen al-Assad. Um, and during that time frame, we were known as the 300 Marines that were surrounded, which wasn't factually accurate, but it means pretty close. But uh, when we were reopening the base, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, ISIL operatives were out there, you know, trying to give us hell and whatnot. But um, that was my last legitimate combat tour. Um, but uh, as far as like, things that stick with you uh i was probably at my worst after my first deployment because that was the first time i'd ever seen anything like that as far as like you know you know death dismemberment whatever explosions you know getting shot at you know you get home you're kind of like on edge you know you see a pile of trash on the road and our uh thing was to drive you know wide around the pile of trash because sure. there's potentially a bomb in it and so i'd be at home in marietta with my uh you know wife uh, back then girlfriend and we drive my truck and I see a pile of trash on like a regular street street that I've driven down many times before deployment. And I do like a wide turn, almost hit another car. And she's like, what are you doing? I was like, Oh, there's a bomb in that trash. And then I sit there and like, Oh wait, I'm home. So it was stuff like that, that stuck with you. And then, you know, during recruiting, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the stuff finally caught up with me after, you know, four tours and I had to get help, you know, and, uh, and, Thankfully, you know, Marines recognized that I was in a bad spot. They asked me the, the hard question. And, you know, I got the help I needed, you know, took about a month, month and a half, you know, a couple months to, to get through it all. But I was able to, you know, learn how to deal with it, learn how to accept it, which is the biggest thing. And then uh, be able to tell my story and, and, and help out Marines understand potentially what they're going to see, what they're going to go through. And I know, Alec, you know, we've had conversations before, too, about the stuff I've seen. And, you know, hopefully you never have to go through it. But at least, you know, I've shared, you know, talked about that, shared those tales with you. That way it's like, OK, we're going somewhere. This could be nasty. I remember this is what Chris said, you know, so right, yeah. we've got to prepare for. So, right. Chris, do you mind? Or is that kind oh. of why you got into recruiting then so that you could, you know, I mean, because a lot of the theme that we've heard is, you know, people kind of go in and they're like, it's going to be crazy. And then it's crazy. And then it, people come back and they kind of have this like very minimal psych evaluation. That's like, are you feeling good? Like, I mean, my uncle Pat was saying yeah. for his, it was like, do you want to kill your wife? And he was like, what? He's like, no, I don't yeah. want to kill my 
life. And then that was, you know, and then from there, he just kind of shuts down and like says everything that he has to say. And they're like, okay, great. You're fine. And then they like never checked on him again, you know? And so I guess for you is that, or I guess, and you can talk a little bit more if there's something different, but like, is that something that stemmed into you wanting to be in recruiting? So recruiting was kind of its own unique beast in of itself. So I didn't volunteer for recruiting. Marine Corps said I needed to do it. So I was like, <laughs> okay, I am Marine Corps, you know, I got orders. I got to go do it. Um, but the biggest thing with that was, you know, for a lot of the Marines that I did recruit, you know, and from what I'm tracking, they're all, you know, doing great in, uh, in the Marine Corps. Now, I think some are actually about to get out because it's already been well over four years for them um, or, move, you know, reenlist and continue on. But, for them, I didn't like, you know, cutting corners. I didn't like try to hide anything. Yeah, you have to do your whole recruiting spiel. You got to like sell them on the Marine Corps and all that stuff. But uh, a lot of them, you know, truly do want to join, want to serve. They just need more info. It's like, okay, cool. But they all knew that, you know, I had an infantry background because initially started as a grunt and then I moved over to fire support. Uh, but they all knew that I had combat tours and combat tours are combat tour, you know, regardless of your job, um, just time and place. And uh, I was like the quote unquote grunt of the office when I was in uh, my recruiting station and all the time, all the uh, future Marines, all the police come up and ask me about combat. Like, what did you see? What was it like? You know, I didn't sugarcoat anything, you know, and I told them that it's, it's not pleasant. It's nasty. You see the worst humanity can offer, you know, there's sight, sound smells, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be associated with death and and hate. Um, But the biggest thing is you have to understand why you're there. You're there to help people out that can't help themselves. Um, and that was the one thing I always rem- reminded my you know, future Marines before boot camp, after boot camp, after their first duty assignment. You know, I actually had a couple of guys call me up. It's like, hey, we're getting ready to do this. You know, Gunny, what do I need to do to prepare? And you know, I just tell them the same thing I told them when they were a police. You know, just you just need to be ready to go and understand that you're doing this for the right reasons to help people out. Um, won't be pleasant, but it's worth it in the long run. It's so, not about you, maybe, theme? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Chris, do you... Um, and if you don't want to, but I'm just like, when you said you finally got to a place where you weren't in a very good place, like mm-hmm. what, what do you mind sharing a little bit about the symptoms? I mean, you know, what was your own kind of self level of self-awareness as you were like kind of operating and functioning well, and then it got like, what was it that you were feeling or thinking or whatever that kind of got you to the point that, you know, you put your hand up and said, Hey, I might need a little bit of help. Um, just, I think the biggest thing is, and I've heard this from a lot of guys and gals that have said that, you know, when they needed help, it was because of a certain situation. And because I was taken out of that operational tempo, that operational mindset of like work up, work up, work up, deploy, come back, chill out. Okay. Work up again. So I was always in that mindset. So I never really, you know, had a chance to sit back and think about it. Or with recruiting, you had to completely shift gears. It's completely different from your day-to-day job. You have to like become a salesman. You got to learn how to talk to people. You got to be able to go out there and, and share the knowledge and, and, and sell the, the Marine Corps. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and so that completely changed. And, you know, there was a lot of like time where, you know, in between making phone calls and going on Facebook, trying to say hi to someone or going to do a class talk, you know, you just be at your office. And sometimes like if nothing was going on and you already had stuff typed in, you're just kind of sitting there like, okay, cool. Like you just had, you start getting along with your thoughts and, just a lot of stuff start creeping up. You know, I'd watch a video and, you know, of like, I don't know, uh, some military appreciation video and I'd start falling. I'm like, I've never done that before. What the hell am I doing? You know, and just, you know, starting to get more and more depressed, 
starting to like think that you're not worth it because, oh, you didn't make, you know, that extra contract this month. You suck. You're a terrible human being, you know, and just it kept, you know, uh, getting worse and worse, started affecting my work, you know, uh, you know, like late to my recruiting station. I wasn't focused on selling. I was like just missing stuff. And then finally I was like, wait, something's not right because I'm thinking about my pistol and what's that going to taste like? You know what I mean? And it was just a bad spot. It absolutely was a bad spot. And then finally, like, yeah, I think something's wrong. One of my Marines, good friend of mine, um, uh, Kenny Woodfin, uh, he's like, hey, Kenny, something's not right. Are you okay? And he's like, I looked at him. I was like, I don't think so, dude. And then I tried, you know, talking to a kid. And I just like labored through it, like fake smile, everything. Like in the inside, I was just hurting. And then finally, you know, my boss, you know, came up to me. He's like, hey, are you okay? I was like, no, something's wrong. So went to the hospital and got the help I needed and, you know, went through all that treatment and definitely 10 to hundred times better and got a second lease on life, got a second chance of being a husband and father, second chance of being Marine and second chance of being a human being. So it was awesome. Uh, well, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at now. Yeah. You did kind of like finally start getting help. Um, was there like, when you said you went to the hospital, was there like a specific type of treatment that was really beneficial for you? Um, it was more of like that cognitive therapy type stuff where it's, uh, and it sucks, but it's where the therapist has you like relive events in your mind. You know, like you're in a setting, you're sitting there, you got your eyes closed and, you know, she was able to get me back to those certain events, you know, those key events, both, you know, prior to the Marine Corps with like the divorce and other stuff throughout life during the Marine Corps, as far as those combat tours leading up to the last thing that was, you know, affecting me. And it's a lot of stuff, you know, and to be able to relive those events, compartmentalize them and understand that, Hey, what happened, happened, you know, it's not your fault. This is just the way the world is. The world's not forgiving, but here's how you deal with it. And be able to go through that kind of therapy really helped out, you know, um, and it, you know, not saying like, am I 100% cured? No. I mean, you can ask Alec, you know, I'm extremely grumpy, you know, sometimes, and sometimes I kind of lash out and it's not like out of malice. It's just, you know, kind of like side effects, but at the same time, you know, I'm not where I was, you know, years ago where I don't even think Alec would want to be in the same room as me, you know? So, but, uh, having, having that help going through all that now, I've never been afraid now to like share to younger Marines, fellow ranks, and even senior guys about like, Hey, listen, this is what I went through. And for like a lot of the senior dudes, like, I know you and I chewed the same dirt, you know, and if you haven't gotten help yet, man, don't be afraid to ask. Cause that was always a big stigma. He's like, Oh yeah, you need to be a man. You don't need help. I'm like, no, no, I should have asked for help a long time ago after the first deployment, let alone after the fourth. Um, but I'm glad I did it. And, you know, I don't regret it. You know, I don't regret anything, you know, I've done, you know, cause we live life and, we make decisions we make and we learn from them. Um, and then also learning how to deal with it just helps you grow as a human. Um, right. So, and I like to share that and like to help others out where I can, especially if they have problems. Well, Chris, I really appreciate you sharing that part of that story. Cause one of the themes, and we talked about this before the show that, you know, all of the vets that we've had on have gone through, I think various levels of kind of that transition back and had their own personal struggles some much more difficult than others, you know, but I think the common theme, you know, that we've gotten to is that, you know, trying to make it within the military community that it's okay not to be okay. And like you said, to, to try to lift the stigma about mental health issues, 
whether it's just feeling angry or whether it's actual depression or whatever it is. And like you said, wondering, you know, about how that pistol tastes. I mean, I, I will never forget. We, we did one of our shows with one of the taps families and um, he had four tours in. And then I think it was, I don't know, within three months after he was back from his last tour, he committed suicide, you know? And so we, we kind of went through that side of the story with the family and those things. And the wife told the story and all that, but I just, you know, and my, and my brother-in-law, Pat Cohen, out of Iowa. Hey, hey Pat, if you're listening. Um, but he's had from guys under his command, you know, multiple suicides in that same way, you know, and it's just, it really, you know, it's a painful, painful thing. And I know that is for everybody. So I guess we want to make sure that it's okay not to be okay, that there is no stigma right. about asking for help. And, you know, if you can't, you know, wherever you are, um, you know, we, we want to invite that. And again, I'll just say this on the show. If you're listening to this and have any issues, we don't always have all the answers, but if you want to hit us up on email or on, the, on our other Instagram stuff, uh, we'll do everything we can to try to make sure we get your resource with the right people. So there, there is help available and uh, you don't have to go through it alone and you're not alone. And we're going to talk about your, your group here at the, in a few minutes about reaching out and supporting veterans. So uh, we just want to make sure that, that that's really okay. So I uh, thank you for sharing, sharing that part of the story. So uh, Alec, I don't want to leave you out. Anything in here that you want to just touch on or follow up with or add to? So I guess I'll start with saying it's a very interesting position when I joined the military because joining in commissioning in 2018, um, you know, you can hear a lot of, you know, a lot of like my, you know, other lieutenant friends were always like, you know, if we had gotten, if we were born five years earlier, you know, how great would that have been? And I think there's a sense of romanticizing it, you know, when you're in the military and you've kind of reached this point where we're generally at, obviously there's still things going on that are, that are combat related, but on a, you know, a national scale, we're, we're, we're toned down. And, you know, just, you know, hearing Chris's story from this, obviously we've gotten into some of that from, from work, but it's just, it's crazy to hear because I, would, I never would have imagined it. Like right. hearing and being able to hear what he's gone through just to see how he works today. And like, you know, I know sometimes he says he gets a little grumpy. I think he's like one of the most <laughs> calm, cool, collected people you'll see. Like he's just kind of like that stoic, <laughs> um, you know, maybe he'll get upset at like one or two things, you know, a couple of things will like, you know, spark the plug, but like in terms of like stoicism in, you know, the day to day when a lot of people can kind of just like be running a run around where like, you know, this is the be all end all that needs to get done. You know, I think I would have never noticed that, you know, and it's crazy to hear those stories. And I think that's something as someone who hasn't experienced combat, you know, working with people who have and kind of like seeing that difference. Um, it, it's just a really, it's a really eye-opening experience for me. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. So, well, let's kind of stand on that, that, that theme. I'm sorry, Chris, you have something else? Yeah, I, I was just going to uh, say, and I, I think I've said this to you before, Alec, but uh, the one thing that I had a Marine back in uh, 2005 when I was on the Ramadi tour uh, with 1-5, um, and I was kind of doing that same thing because, I had joined and went to like a specific unit that didn't go into Iraq. It was in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia. And so I missed the, you know, uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom 2, which is in Fallujah, which, you know, uh, a lot of people do their, their history on that. That was a big operation to clear out Fallujah. And one of these, a bunch of these Marines uh, that was with me on this uh, post in Ramadi, um, you know, we were talking about Fallujah. And I kind of mentioned like, God damn, man, you know, I wish, I wish I was there with you guys during that time frame, Like, you know, I was already in Ramadi, already got shot at, already blown up. But here I was, you know, saying like, I wish I was there. And the guy that I was talking to, 
you know, and, and it stuck with me all these years. He says like, you know, don't, I don't want you to don't say that. And he's like, well, what do you mean? Don't say it, which was with you. It's like, cause you know, I don't want you to say it because you need to understand it's like, who's to say the rounds that missed me would have hit you if you were there, you know? And then it kind of made me think it's like, Oh, okay. Well, that kind of makes sense. And, and, and I get it. Like you were saying, Alec, like a lot of guys that came in during your time frame, like romanticizing about it, you know, wanting to go there. But uh, like, I've always told someone, it's like, you know, appreciate the time that you did get a chance to come in, you know, appreciate the time that you were able to serve your country and do what you need. If combat happens, combat happens. If it doesn't, you know, it doesn't either way, just be a good person, be a great Marine, you know, but who's to say like the rounds that would have missed me, Alec would have hit you if you're with me back then, you know, we don't know, but at the same time, it's like, you know, uh, don't, don't think that you missed out on anything. You know, there's still, Plenty of idiots in the world are going to try something. So your chance will come soon. But if you never have to see it like a combat, cool. You know, good for you and good for anyone else that never has to worry about that type of stuff. Because, yeah, unfortunately, it's a necessary evil that we have to do, you know, as people that care about our country and our families, you're going out there and then facing evil, you know, uh, unfortunately, something that we have to do. But if you don't ever have to experience it, then cool to still be a good person, be, be a good, good dude, good gal, whatever. And, and, continue contributing to society you know either way you're going to give back so but yeah i always say like you know don't ever don't ever fret about missing out because the rounds that missed me could have hit you so yeah i mean and it just i mean from my perspective it just makes you know your generation appreciated you know so much more i think it's just a really cool i think it's a cool to you know dichotomy oh yeah it's like working together and everything Wow, we almost need a group hug here. I like it. That's pretty good. <laughs> down for that. I'm down yeah. for hug. Okay. Well, Chris, I just want to ask you this. So um, Em and I, we work with our group is called Thunderbird Performance. Uh, and we work a little program. It's called Mindful Awareness and Performance. So we work with athletes on kind of the mental prep. And so it's a meditation and mindfulness-based kind of approach to, you know, your mindset. But I, I just wondered, you know, in these years, and I know you talked about kind of getting like the cognitive therapy. So that's a real specific piece. But, you know, and I guess, you know, when I think about the Marines, I think about leadership training, you know, I think about intentionality, I think about what you said about, you know, when they tell you it's not about you and that kind of stuff. So it's, they really do kind of, when they break you down, they reconstruct you in a way that presents a mindset. You know, in my mind, it's about problem solving, it's about loyalty, it's about service to others, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and being able to operate, you know, even if you're afraid, you know, having enough courage to stand up and do whatever it is that you have to do in those moments. But I just wonder, do you have so in our world, you know, with, when I'm working with athletes, we, you know, we go through kind of assessments and all that kind of thing. And we work on clarifying who they think they are and what they want to be and their goals and all that kind of stuff. But we use, like I said, mindfulness and some meditation. We work on affirmations, you know, to clarify where they want to go after we do some goal setting. We do some visualization type work. Emma does a lot of movement things with yoga, you know, and breath work and that kind of stuff. So I just wondered over the years, you know, I don't know if the Marines train you in any of that kind of stuff, or do you have a, a mindfulness or, you know, how do you control that mindset? And I don't mean necessarily just combat, but I mean, just overall about being positive, can do guy and all that kind of stuff. How do you, how do you maintain that over the, over these years? Well, I, guess well, I, wanna, I just want to kind of add to that. Cause it's like, right. So everything that he said, but then, you know, in those moments where like you, like you were saying, sometimes you're just presented with the situation where you're like sitting there, like, okay, I just did all my work. Okay. I'm done. And then you're like sitting there alone with your thoughts. 
So like when those moments even kind of creep in, like, do you kind of have these, you know, these tools that you use or like, what do you rely on to keep you not necessarily neutral, but like at least present with what's going on? Right. Um, so back then, like, I really didn't know how to deal with it. I just would sit there and dwell on it. But after going through the therapy and whatnot, they, you know, showed like different methods as far as like, whether it's kind of like a breathing meditation type thing, or like a grounding yourself, you put your feet on the ground, you know, uh, hands on your knees, and you kind of count backwards or do the alpha backwards or start, you know, going into a place internally that makes you happy. Like, you know, like, uh, going back to my my grandparents' home, you know, when I would go visit them, you know, TV beyond watching, you know, Niners back in the day, be, whooping up on uh, Green Bay in the playoffs. Um, grandpa would be sitting there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and grandpa would be uh, sitting there and, you know, just stuff like that that would take me back to like a, a happy spot, if you will. Um, and that's kind of stuff I do nowadays. But I think the biggest, you know, thing for me really is just my wife and kids, you know, uh, being able to shut it down you know, whatever the day brought as far as like, you know, whatever 111, you know, had us working on or whatever the Marine Corps needs us to focus on or something like that, or whatever issues came up throughout the day, you know, being able to like kind of shut it off in the truck on the, the way home and then hanging out with my kids, playing with my kids and talking with the wife. I think that's what really helps me nowadays. Um, you know, cause like for me, my wife is my rock, you know, she has absolutely been through so much crap throughout all the years uh we've been together since 2004 um and uh all the deployments all the training all the time apart uh, but she has just always been there she's always just held it down and, and by far out of this entire relationship she is absolutely the toughest the toughest one uh out of the two of us um so absolutely she she has kept it together for me and then of course my kids my kids you know get home they, they want to wrestle or my son wants to show the puzzle he just built or, you know, uh, my other boy wants to show like comic book uh, that he drew. And my daughter was like, Hey, pick me up. I'm like, that's it. You know, I just instantly feel better. So, uh, I think for me, it's my family is definitely something that, you know, helps me out driving nuts sometimes, but you know, that's all I love. Emma's do that. Emma's do that though. They Emma's do that. Sure, Absolutely. They for sure do. Well, um, Chris, the one thing I do want to highlight on that, I think is a really important part that you mentioned you know, the transition when we, you know, and whoever it is, but when you re-enter, so we, we all carry these different roles in our life, you know what I mean? So when you're doing whatever you're doing during the day, when you're not deployed in the military capacity, you've got all those obstacles or whatever, tension, stress, any, whatever it is, however it is. But to have the mental awareness that when you pull in and you park the car, it's like, I don't know if you take your hat off or like some people actually do a symbolic kind of thing you know, and they leave it. And so they're making, they're making an intentional transition from that military role with all of that stuff that you're carrying and worrying and the emotions and all that attached to it. And not like you don't have to come back to it, but like you make sure you check it at the door. So then when you walk in that you can be fully present. And I think that's a learned behavior because I think that that was really hard for me in my early years of just, you know, my career, you know, I'd be also tied mm -hmm. up and do all that. You're working 60, 80 hours a week. And then you come home and you don't have the wherewithal. It really wasn't until we had our second kid that I was like, what am I doing? Like, this is so much right. greater than anything else in my life. And so I think that's a great point about, and that's, you know, when we work with people in mindfulness, it's being super intentional about paying attention to thoughts, understanding your emotions, holding space for them. And then the real thing is between the pause and then responding is making sure that you're choosing a response and not just reacting 
to that situation right. that you're show, showing up in the way that you want to do. So I think that's super important with people that have kind of stressful jobs. And when they're coming back to try to be present with other people, making sure that you're really being intentional about how you want to show up those people in those moments. So kudos to you on that one. So that's, that's very, very good. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? And then Alec, I just, I don't want to leave you out either. So I don't know if you picked up anything or the, you know, the, cause you guys get the super secret officer training. So there's probably a whole bunch of toolkits in there, but anything extra that they've, you know, that you've come across that has been helpful for you regarding kind of your mindset and, or, you know, kind of staying in that mindfulness place. I think that, at least kind of like what I've seen over the last few years is just, it, it has been at least more destigmatized, you know, to talk about mental health and things like that, you know, in the workplace. Um, so I think, you know, just having those initial conversations, kind of the symbolic thing that you do, I don't know if it was, you know, very completely symbolic for how I do it, but, um, you know, after, and again, you know, stress is all relative, but, you know, after, you know, a stressful day or something, or, you know, a stressful few weeks or whatever, uh, I started making the decision I wasn't going to drive home or anything in my uniform. So like, that's my, you know, lack of a symbolic thing. Right. Like I'll leave it there. Um, and you know, that was kind of my thing is like, not that I'm trying to like leave, you know, the identities along with it there, but like, okay, work works over. And I think that, you know, just having conversations, I think my dad was, you know, shameless plug there was actually a huge rock for that. Cause he, I always admired when he would come home from work you know, and he's, he's pulling 80 hour weeks or whatever it is. <sighs> and, uh, you know, just, he, he wouldn't talk about work. He just, you know, he'd, he'd be home and he'd, he'd be the father. Um, and just hoping to like gain those habits. Obviously I don't have the, the wife and kids, but you know, Not yet. Hope, I mean, no. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll keep those habits, you know? Right. right. Be the, and that's really hard because you, and your dad, you know, he's a high stakes, big, high profile litigation attorney, you know, primarily doing defense stuff, but, um, not easy stuff. You know what I mean? He would tell me about his, his weeks. I'm like, cause I did all criminal defense, right. Which is crazy town anyway, but like, Oh my gosh. So like uh, the things that he had to deal with and all that, and to be able to come home like that and kind of shelve it and be present. So uh, that's great. And I think that's a great idea about just changing clothes before you leave. Cause it really makes a cognitive shift. You know, we call that in our world, we call that activation, you know, so you're activating a particular role in your life. And it's very good to have either some kind of token or symbol to make that specific transition. So you're going from one role or kind of place in a mindset into a separate one. And so change of clothes before you leave, because then you do. And again, it's not like you're disrespecting your job or your service or anything like that, but it puts you in just a different frame of mind and you're able to kind of leave that and enter into a new role. So I think that's a, that's a great one. So that's, that's pretty cool that way. So very nicely done. All right. All right, cool. Uh, let's see. I want to give a quick shout out to our MVP folks. I'm just going to read their mission statement. And then we're going to jump down and talk about our group. And I'm going to mispronounce it because I can't say, is it Semper Fi? Yeah. Am I close? Okay. I don't know why. It's like I keep thinking the E is going to sound weird. But anyway, all right, Merging Vets with Players. Everybody knows that that's been one of our partners uh, this year. We've been very grateful for them. Uh, we will have another MVP vet. For next week, after the Niners beat the Rams, make the playoffs before we go to the wild card game. So Emerging Vets with Player mission is to empower combat veterans and former professional athletes by connecting them after the uniform comes off, providing them with a new team to assist with transition and promoting personal development and show them that they are never alone. Very simple, very similar when we read the Simplify uh, mission statement as well. So again, just out there, there's a lot of resources, uh, men and women out there, uh, military events. 
and so and or others. But if you're having any kind of issues out there, make sure that uh, you do ask for help because there's a lot of people out there. So, okay, then, Chris, I want to get back then. So uh, each week when we have a vet on, uh, we donate $2,000 to the charity of their choice. And so kind of I think you and Alec talked about that. And so I'll just read this and then you can talk to me a little bit about why this is your organization. So uh, it's called the Semperfy and Americans Fund, America's Fund. It says we are dedicated to providing immediate financial assistance and lifetime support to combat wounded, critically ill and catastrophically injured members of all branches of the United States Armed Forces and their families. We apply your donations to comprehensive proven programs that deliver immediate and long-lasting impact. We ensure service members have the resources they need during their recovery and throughout transition back to their communities. So tell us a little bit, how'd you get hooked up with these? And I just want to say too, I think they were formed in 2003 and they were formed by a group of spouses, wives primarily of uh, men who had been serving because they felt like there was a need for this. And so their history is pretty cool. So if you're interested more about that, it's all on the website. But Chris, tell us a little bit about why this is your organization and why we're making the donation. I mean, it's kind of like in their mission statement right there, because I think there's a lot of, uh, especially back in the day, a lot of vets that were coming back, you know, that were injured. Like I'm, I'm, I'm blessed, you know, God bless me with making sure I still have my, all my digits, parts and limbs, all that stuff. Um, you know, still going through what I went through, but I'm, you know, there's other vets that weren't as fortunate as me coming back as like double, triple amps or, or something like that. And unfortunately, you know, uh, had to find a way to function in society. And, uh, you know, there'd be times where they just couldn't do much because, you know, they're just disabled or, or, you know, couldn't and function, I would say in a, the capacity needed for like a, a busy society like ours here in America. Um, and I think with this, this foundation, I think, you know, them helping the, those veterans out, those warriors out uh, to be able to get back on their feet, take care of their families and do what they need to do to keep, you know, progressing in our society. I think that's outstanding. So, um, like I said, I'm, I'm very fortunate to be where I'm at now. Uh, and hopefully, like with this foundation, they can definitely help others continue going forward and be able to help out, too. And plus, with the advancement in technology and all these new artificial limbs coming out, you know, hopefully this foundation and many other foundations and societies can help get our, you know, disabled veterans and, and people that need it the most, the, the parts and pieces they need to, to get back into the fold and, and help out and help progress our society. So absolutely. I think it's a, it's a great cause. Okay. So uh, we will have uh, the donation page. We'll have links in the show notes and we'll put all those in. And so if folks are so inclined, but we'll make that donation this week. And get that out there and encourage folks. And again, um, we just encourage folks, you know, do what you can in your local area. And if it's not this, but if you're committed to some other cause. Um, and again, I just, uh, I really like where we started is that it's not about you. Um, and it is and it isn't. But it's about us getting off our butts and going out and doing things to help other people. That's really what it's about, to the extent it's about us at all. But otherwise, it's not. So uh, we do want to lift people up, you know, as we're uh, kind of moving forward with that. Alec, you want to add anything or I don't want to cut you off anything about this organization or otherwise? No, I mean, everything Chris said, you know, I, I completely agree with it. And all these organizations, you know, especially that I haven't, you know, heard much about the MVP until I saw what you guys were doing and, you know, the organizations you guys have been supporting has been really cool to kind of hear, you know, different guests and just want to add, add another one to the table. So. Yeah. Well, we're very proud to do that. Uh, excited about doing that. So, okay. Um, let's see. Is there, Chris, I, before we hang up, I guess there's two things I just want to kind of offer you and then Emma will close us out. But 
Uh, one, is there any message to, I don't know, youth out there and or maybe young military members, but not necessarily exclusively? Is there some lesson or wisdom that you kind of want to share? And or secondly, is there anything you'd want to tell just kind of the nasty citizens out there who, you know, just anything else about being in the military or these transitions that we haven't covered that you think it's important for people to know? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I would say for uh, people thinking about joining the military or like you said, the, the younger uh, service members, regardless of branch, I think the biggest thing is just be humble and be patient, you know, and, you know, definitely listen because you know, you're going to have a lot of those uh, seasoned vets, you know, that have been there, done that, you know, taking, you know, good, bad and different, you know, whatever advice they gave you and, and learn from that and build from that. Um, and that's both on the enlisted and officer side. Um, it's to definitely, you know, be humble, be patient and listen. Um, and I would also say that for civilians as well, you know, cause there are some people that have chose not to, to serve, which is fine. Nothing wrong with that. They're contributing to society in their own way. You know, they're helping out their communities in their own way, which is great. Um, but I would also say the same thing for them that, you know, they always look, read the media or hear news stories, woe is me with military or something like that. It's like, that's not the case. Again, same thing is be humble, you know, listen and just understand that it's not an easy world to serve in the military because there is a lot of stuff you got to put up with. There's a lot of time away from the family. There's a lot of, you know, tough decisions that have to be made. And unfortunately, there are decisions that will put people in harm's way, you know, and I think a lot of people need to understand that that is not a tough decision. And, you know, more so for Alec, he definitely has it probably worse than me because being an officer at the end of the day, it's the officer that is the ominous dominus person, you know, and then for us enlisted, we're the ones that execute. Now, of course, I'll advise him, other enlisted people will advise him on what's going to work best. But at the end of the day, it's him signing at the, the dotted line. Um, but the biggest thing is just being humble, being patient and uh, you know, listening, understanding. Um, so, yeah. Okay. And not all, not all civilians are nasty. I just want to put it out there. That was just, <laughs> it's like a Marine Corps recruiter, drill instructor joke. Oh, uh, was, I thought, I thought by definition, <laughs> if you weren't serving, you were nasty. I thought just, like it's no, that know. way or that way. Oh, okay. All right. All good. <laughs> Alec, any, um, and I know you don't have the same number of years in or that, necessarily that combat deployment stuff, but is there anything else you'd like folks to kind of understand about either military service or maybe talk to the high school person going into college? You know, is there any kind of nugget that you'd want to let them know about uh, so they might not have to fall down so many times to figure it out? Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of looking from the high school to pers to college perspective. Um, yeah. Just being, being open to the opportunities and taking it's never going to look the way that, that you imagine it looking, you know, like if you were to ask me, I think it was actually when I was like, I passed through and stayed at your guys' house right before I was actually going to the basic school in 2018. So, you know, like the last time we had talked, um, you know, I don't think that my, my um, current, you know, career would have turned out the same, but it's, it's taking the, the experiences and making the, the most out of them, you know, having to turn those positive experiences and, you know, the, the romanticized views or, you know, what you're expecting from your service a lot of times, especially, you know, talking to those who are looking to go in might not be what you're, what you're going to get out of it. But that doesn't mean that, you know, your mindset, you know, needs to be negative or you need to, you know, be bitter at something or someone. Um, take the stories that you learn from, you know, those you serve, you know, with and then those you serve for and uh, just kind of, you know, be a sponge to all of it. And that was kind of 
you know, my biggest advice. Right. Well, it's really true. I mean, you have to follow your heart and you take the steps, but you have to go down the path, even though you don't know exactly where the path leads, because there's always kind of a curve at the bottom and you can't tell if it's going back up the hill or off a cliff, you know, but that's part of the fun. And so you don't know, and you just have to go and trust that you'll figure it out along the way. And it always looks a little bit different than you thought it was going to, but God bless the journey. You know what I mean? And there we are. So, okay. Emmy, you want to close us out then? Yes. So um, as we close, guys, we like to kind of end with an upward swing. So uh, we always like to talk about hope and kind of seeing the glass half full. So Chris, we'll start with you, but um, what gives you hope right now? Um, The future for my kids, you know, uh, I think that's what gives me hope as far as being there for them. You know, like I said, in the next few years, I'm going to retire from the Marine Corps. Um, you know, get into a normal nine to five job, you know, whatever that looks like, I'll figure it out. But being able to be there, not miss events anymore, not deploy on birthdays, Christmases and stuff like that. Um, I think that's the biggest thing right there is to be around, but also be there to, you know, be a good father, to be a good husband and, then you know, help my family, you know, accomplish great things. And that's what gives me hope is just seeing what all three of my kids are going to be capable of because they're all unique individuals um, in their own way and they have their own talents and I want to be able to see those talents flourish and do something great. So that's what gives me hope is just seeing what uh, uh, my children can do um, and just hang out with life and, you know, have fun. That's great. Well, I I'm excited for you to have that opportunity. Um, Alec, what about you? Um, So I guess for me, a little bit different, you know, coming up on my first contract, I think the, the hope aspect stems from, you know, just trying to be like, have a, like an outward perspective kind of like while I'm currently going through the present, um, meaning that, you know, just taking the journey for how it's going to be, you know, looking forward to the next three years as like a new opportunity, you know, whether or not staying in or transitioning, um, just kind of, yeah, being open to, to all the new, new changes and opportunities. You know, sometimes I think people can always feel like you might be older, more like, stuck in your current career or whatever than you are, but like, I'm, I'm only 25, you know, I have a little bit more time than I think I sometimes would like to imagine I do. So, you know, pivots and everything like that, you know, along the the path of life is kind of what's given me hope. Exciting times. Um, BK, what about you? Well, I'm going to go with uh, when Chris was talking about one of his deployments, you mentioned um, when you, you were there and the framework, your mental kind of approach to the thing was that you were there fighting evil and trying to protect people in their lives, you know, who couldn't protect themselves. And, but one of the things you said, you know, they were just trying to live a normal life, you know? So it's like, as far removed sometimes as we feel, you know, from people in those corners of the earth and the world, and maybe sometimes even here locally, you know, in the United States, sometimes we feel really different, but you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans, you know, and at least in this country, to the extent that we're all, um, you know, United States citizens and even globally though, even when we're not, you know, that common interest about protecting your spouse and protecting your children and just trying to make the world a little bit better place for them and keeping them safe. You know, when you Reese told that, you know, I think about that all the time, but it just reminds me, you know, that we, we really are, whether we speak a different language, have a different religion or whatever, we're, we're a lot more the same than we are different, you know, because at, a, at its base, you know, our common interests, for the most part, not everyone, you know, obviously, but for the most part, everybody, you know, we love our families. We're trying to protect it, trying to make our communities better and safer. 
And I, I think that's kind of a universal theme, you know, and, and so when I hear that, and I, I would think that that was part of your experience. You met some amazing people probably over there who are just trying to live their lives, stay out of danger and protect their kids. So, you know, that gives me hope if, and my, I guess my hope for 22 is maybe being able to make that connection a little bit in a bigger way. And maybe we can set down some of the divisiveness that we've experienced over there the last few years, you know, both nationally and internationally and just spend more time thinking about how we're in common and, you know, the things we need to do for this planet and each other. So that gives me a lot of hope. Give them pops. All right, Lubu, where you got? Close us out. It's got to be a zinger. Bam, um, let's go. Guess, well, and this is something that I was even thinking about with Tom when we interviewed him, but um, I just, I feel like, you know, over the last couple of years and just living through these crazy circumstances and like really every single day, not knowing what's going to come next or like what's on the news. I think it's really developed this kind of resiliency within people that is really starting to manifest now. And it makes me you know, we're definitely not like through anything yet, but even just seeing this like new level of resiliency and like kind of figure it out on your own and like finding your own path. I feel like it's, people are really learning how to do that in a way that maybe we haven't in the past. And so I guess, um, I don't know. I'm just, I'm hopeful, you know, new year, love, love all the new energy that comes with it, but even just kind of the new mindset and this fresh energy. And I think, you know, the new year can sometimes be really symbolic for people to like have a fresh start. And I think sometimes that's all we need to really let go of, you know, the past and things that have really hurt us and that really aren't serving us anymore. So kind of like set down that backpack, like we talk about a lot, but, um, but yeah, so, and having guys like you on, and then we get to see you tomorrow or Sunday, Sunday. Yeah. So that'll be really Sunday. great. Oh yeah. Okay. I'm going to end with a quote. I don't know who this guy was, but I saw it on a thing I was reading. Uh, it's from John Paul. It's C-R-I-M-I. I don't know him, so I hope he's, you know, I don't I hope that's okay. But anyway, the quote was, it was on a Buddhist meditation page, so I think it's okay. But anyway, he said, only do what is easy and life gets hard. If you do what is hard, life will get easy. And I, you know, and I think that ties into kind of that point you're making is that, you know, whether by choice or not, um, over the last, you know, 18, 24 or whatever, three years, we've had the opportunity to kind of face some things, the civilians and otherwise, you know, that weren't really what we wanted to do. But, and I think you're right though, maybe that resiliency kind of toughness and people would have some confidence now to go out and we're figuring out how to live in this world that we've got right now and, and maybe, you know, make a little bit of a difference. So that's great. So, okay, very good. Well, we've been chatting a lot, Chris, Alec, any final words you want to kind of pump in before we close off? And then hopefully we'll see you on Sunday at the, at the old Rams game with the Niners in town. <laughs> Come on, baby. Yeah, I just uh, appreciate you guys uh, having us on. Uh, absolutely. And just go Niners and beat the Rams. All right, beat the Rams. I'll take it. All right, go Niners. Thank you, guys. <laughs> yeah, like really yeah, good to you. connect with you. And Yeah, uh, great, likewise. I've already sent you the tickets, so you got all of your package for everybody. So, Chris, if he's not, if he's holding out on you, he actually has the tickets, so don't <laughs> let him do that. All right, and then we'll try to hook up with you guys when we get to the stadium. So, thank you for your service. Alec, you be safe. Good luck with whatever transition you decide to go forth, and we appreciate your service as well. And uh, we love you and your family very, very much, so we're grateful for that friendship as well. So, thank you. Okay? Yeah. All right, guys. Enjoy it. We'll Thanks, see you guys. on Sunday. Yeah. Okay, you have to take thank care. Bye-bye. All right, everybody, thank you so much for being a part of that show. Can't believe we're at the end of the regular season. Um, 
very in my feels as I am uh, per usual after these episodes, but I just want to give a big thank you to everybody who was on tonight. Um, Tom, George, Pops, um, Alec, and Chris. That was uh, some really great stuff and very, very happy and proud to be a part of this and all of the different stories we've been able to share this year. So if you'd like to stay connected with us, uh, we are Hidden Pearls Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, We are Hidden Pearls Pod on Twitter. And then if you, like we mentioned, if you ever want to reach out, want to have a conversation about something or are looking for resources or need a little bit of help, um, you can send us an email at info at thunderbirdperformance.com. And then Pops and I both have access to that. So you'll be emailing to us. Um, But just want to say thank you guys so much for being a part of this journey. And if you feel like sprinkling a little magic um, on us, it would be really helpful if you could go onto the Apple podcast and leave us a five-star review and actually leave a comment. Um, it really, really helps our ratings with the show. And it also helps us to get our message out there, which is really important to us, um, because we really believe that mental health and how it affects not only, uh, veterans, but, you know, kind of using their stories to really tell the story of it's okay to not be okay. And kind of spreading that message is super, super important. And we want to make sure that anybody who needs help can get help. And, you know, sometimes that might be from a little podcast. And so if you guys could do that, it would mean the world to us. And we just want to say thank you. So with all that, um, can't wait to head down to LA and go Niners, baby.